Good evening, Mayor, City Council. It is now 530 uh, and welcome to the reg uh, special and regular City Council meeting of uh, January 16, 2024. Uh, we are broadcasting live on the city's website. We're also on Zoom and we are on cable TV channel 27. Thank you, City Clerk. Uh, call this meeting to order on January the 16th at 5.30 p.m. Uh, we have the following closed session items, conference with real property negotiators, uh, Gene Hiller, uh, price and terms, counsel with legal counsel, existing litigation, uh, government case Porche versus city of Sausalito, uh, conference with legal counsel, existing litigation, Whiskey Springs, Villa, HOA versus the city of Sausalito, conference with legal counsel, anticipated litigation, uh, one case. Uh, could we please open public comment on any of these closed session items? Uh, for any members, uh, currently we don't have any members of the public in house in council chambers and there are, um, uh, any Zoom members, you can use the raise hand function. Uh, there are no members of the public right now. All right. And could we, uh, for the record, please call the roll? Council member, uh, sorry, let me, let me do that. <laughs> Council member Blaustein. Here. Uh, Council member Hoffman. Here. Council member Kelman. Here. Vice Mayor Cox. Here. And Mayor Sobieski. Here. Uh, so we will now close public comment since there is no uh, public comment and we will adjourn to closed session. Thank you. Recording stopped.
Leading back to order, uh, there are no announcements outside of closed session, uh, aside from Happy New Year. Uh, I want to announce that on the agenda, items uh, 3C and 4C have been removed. Uh, I'm sorry, 3C and 5C. Thank you for the correction, Vice Mayor. As well as I'm sorry to report that item 3B is also being removed. Um, the applicant uh, indicated today via email that she is no longer interested in being appointed to the commission. Uh, items 3 and 5C will come back on February the 6th. Uh, so we would like to start with the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. So if we would kindly all rise and uh, recite the pledge. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you very much. And now I'd uh, like to approve the agenda. Is there a motion? So I move approval of the agenda as amended. Second. City Clerk, would you kindly call the roll? Uh, we don't need to do a roll call. We'll... All right. Uh, all in favor, say aye. 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 Uh, agenda is approved. First item on the agenda are interviews for boards and commissions. Uh, the first interviewee is Michelle Dumont for the Planning Commission. Is Ms. Dumont here? Please uh, come up to the podium. Welcome. Please come up to the podium and uh, kindly spend a minute introducing yourself, and then we'll spend the rest of our time asking you questions. We have the very pretty. Housing Owners Advisory Committee. I was present 
So I got to observe everything um, and learn a lot about Sao Pluto really quickly. Um, and this was really inspiring to see Cincinnati and come back in a much larger capacity. Uh, to be clear, I'm not just passionate about buildings, I'm passionate about the people and the communities too. And that's why I'm motivated about the project today. Um, to ensure that Salsalito retains its distinctive identity and continues to thrive. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Zapanta. Are there questions from the dais, please? Always. Hi, Michelle. Nice to see you. Uh, thank you for, for being here. I Really great resume. Thank you. If those of you who don't see it, we got this uh, printout, which is uh, actually really beautiful and thoughtful. Thank you. Um, so you're passionate about people and you're passionate about buildings. How do you feel about space? And I ask that because one of the things on our docket this year is about public spaces. And uh, the trade-offs between, I think, beautification and resilience. What are your thoughts on some of those trade-offs and how communities like ours can address those? Thank you. Other questions from the dais, please. Sure. Have you watched any recent planning commission meetings? Thank you. Are there other questions from the dais? I have a question then. Uh, have you gone before a planning commission in another community in your role as an architect? Her mic is not on. Sorry, that was our fault. <laughs> we'll let you answer this uh, last question if you'd like from the start on the microphone. Just repeat. Can you hear me now? We can, yes. Okay. Did you hear anything I said? Unfortunately. 
I see. Okay. Uh, so the last question, have I been in front of a planning commission in an another city? And uh, generally the work I've done in San Francisco, we try to maintain as much of the history as possible. So there's ability to notify your neighbors um, and have that 30 day review. Um, there's so much history there. We really want to make sure our clients under my clients understand uh, that we want to maintain as much of it as possible. Uh, another example, I've gone before design review boards in the Santa Lucia Preserve in Carmel. Uh, and that is, uh, you go with the landscape architect and uh, we had great success recently on a project because we didn't use a screen. We printed out large drawings, we came together um, and everyone could really understand and see. Um, so those are, you know, those, I realize we can't do that all the time, but the in-person meetings and the engagement, that's what I try to always look for is how to better engage with the people I'm communicating with. Ms. Dumont, thank you very much for being here and for applying. Thank you. Thanks. Our next candidate for the Historic Preservation Committee is Virginia Irwin. Is she here? City Clerk, is she appearing by Zoom or was she coming in person? Virginia Irwin, Christina, um, it might be, let me see if uh, Christina Irwin is, her. If Christine, if uh, Virginia Irwin is on the Zoom, if she could kindly raise her hand in the Zoom function so this city clerk can see you. I see it on mute. If you can unmute yourself, please, Chris or uh, Virginia. No, somebody else is. Sorry, hello. I'm asking uh, the person that's Christina Irwin to unmute herself. Hi, good evening. I'm sorry. Can we uh, uh, we can hear you. Hold on. The volume is very low. Can we do anything about her volume? City clerk. Can you say something, Virginia? Uh, can you hear me now? Is the volume better? Yes. Could you, um, the floor is yours, and then we'll follow up with a few questions. Are you, is, we can hear you if you I can think, introduce yourself uh, and your interest in joining the Historic Preservation Committee. I think that you have commented or asked me on the wrong item. My name is Christina Irwin, and I'm here to talk about uh, the housing element programs. I see. Okay, so you're not Apologies. Virginia Irwin. All right, we're, okay. we're just trying to make sure. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yes, would you like... <laughs> Uh, so does that mean that we don't nope. can't find Ms. Irwin? Yeah. All right. So is Craig Mirilis on the, uh, oh, there he is. Hello, Craig. Mr. Mir Mirilis, I apologize. Uh, yes. Uh, just to let you know, uh, we're here to interview. We're not acting on EDAC tonight. That item was taken off the agenda, but we're glad you're here. Thank you. If you kindly introduce yourself and you're interested in joining EDAC, we'll follow up with some questions. Thank you, Mayor Sobieski and council members. My name is Craig Mirilis. And I'm here tonight to stand before you, be questioned, and hopefully give you uh, thoughtful answers about the Economic Development Advisory Commission. All right. Questions, please, for Mr. Mayor, please. Vice Mayor. What is your interest in serving on the Economic uh, uh, Development Committee, and what is your understanding of its role, and how would you contribute to that role? Okay. Three questions. <laughs> um, 
I have a long history of working on economic policy matters, um, including development uh, questions, um, and uh, have done so by working with diverse communities, often ones that are at odds with each other, um, uh, groups that go to war. And I, I can't say everybody was always totally satisfied with the result, but it's like, the struggles that you all go through trying to find common threads and and look for ways to get people to agree on on things that benefit the entire the entire constituency the entire city county state i've worked at local state and federal um levels uh, on those kinds of projects and i'd love to do some work here. I'm recently um, retired and uh, I have uh, more time available and would like to put some of that to work for the service of the city. Got it. Other questions, please. Uh, please. Hi, Craig. Nice to see you. I know you've actually already been quite involved in the city of Sausalito. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that work? Yeah, I, I think you probably are referring to my work with the Working Waterfront Coalition and land development questions, housing uh, questions, um, and economic development. Um, and, uh, you know, that all came about largely as a result of my experience building one of the last houseboats in Sausalito uh, before the untimely passing of uh, the, the owner there that had kept that going for many, many years. Um, so, uh after ian's passing we we uh we had our houseboat but we were one of the last ones to be built there in the yard and it gave me a a, a wonderful impression of the challenges and the problems with that area in the city but the also the incredible potential that area has so it's a first-hand experience and I, i'm glad I'm better off for it i think any other questions council member hoffman yeah Cheryl. So, um, Craig, thanks for being here. Uh, what are some opportunities you think uh, that we should explore for economic development that perhaps we haven't spent enough time on? I I can't say that, that the council hasn't at times discussed all, I think, the important aspects of economic development. You know, it may be questions of balance, um, emphasis, um, but uh, I, I, I don't fault the council for not being aware of, reviewing, and considering um, all the good options, but getting the balance right and sometimes getting the particulars, that's the hard part, and that's what you guys are doing day in and day out. Um, I, I think that it's, it's often thought that industrial and maybe maritime work is kind of grungy, low value, um, old-fashioned kind of work but I, I think the past few years have taught a lot of us that 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 kind of work the kind of physical work the kind of manual labor um, now uh, supplemented with the latest high-tech um, kinds of uh, technology is uh, you know becoming more and more something that we want to be able to do in this country whether it's train young people to be engineers um, machinists um, all of which require 
you know, really advanced training at this point. And the Marin ship and, and uh, the uh, working waterfront is where some of that's happening. And a lot more would, I think, only serve to benefit the city and make us known and, and have uh, our, uh, generate significant revenues for the city. There's a lot of people looking for that kind of work to do, and we happen to have a place to do it. Most people don't. Do you, uh, Mr. Mayor, I guess I'll ask the last question. Do we have, uh, do you have any ideas, like Councilmember Kelman was asking, around how to revitalize the working waterfront activity there in, in the context of landlords charging rents that are above the what, what, what people can pay? Yeah, that's part of the conundrum. I think a lot of that has to do meaning the, the, the higher than optimal industrial rates um, that are being charged has to do with land use policies that predate all of you. And, and that involves the, the struggle to enforce uh, zoning as it exists. I, I think, Mr. Mayor, you had some firsthand experience with how frustrating that can be despite the best of intentions uh, to try and make sure that we have conforming uses. And, you know, naturally, folks are always trying to slip in around the edges and make the most money, regardless of what the city's policy is. Um, but oftentimes, I think that's money for them and, and uh, not in the best interest of the city. And uh, so your work and the, the work that we have yet to do for uh, enforcement and coming up with coherent uh, land use policies that make sense to people. Um, the Marinship specific plan is a challenge to read. It's a challenge to enforce. And, you know, we might, you know, benefit from having a, a more straightforward uh, approach to land use, if that's possible. Well, our time is up. Thank you uh, for all your work on behalf of Sausalito and for your interest in applying to the Economic Development Advisory Committee. Thank, Thank you. you for your kind reception. Uh, we're done with interviews. Uh, the next... Um, we might have uh, Jackie Spencer Davis, who was. Um... I'm sorry you missed that. Uh, we, that has been pulled from the agenda. Okay, she has it. indicated she's not interested uh, in declining the opportunity to, for that appointment. Sorry, City Clerk, that that just happened uh, a, a few minutes before the meeting. Thank you for trying to catch a possible error. Our first agenda item uh, is now special presentations and mayor's announcements. I just have two. One is to uh, acknowledge uh, the promotion of our own uh, Stacy Gregory to Chief of Police. Uh, congratulations. It was, uh, the ceremony on Saturday was uh, on a rainy day like today, and it was standing room only at the Spinnaker. An incredible crowd of residents and well-wishers came to salute her and the other officers who received promotions, Lieutenant Brian Mather, Lieutenant Brandon Rogers, Sergeant Nick Wright, Sergeant Edgar Padilla, Corporal Adam Clarici and Corporal Ryan Walsh. They should all be congratulated for their promotions. The uh, testimony from the police chief is that the morale in the police department is high and positive and everyone is excited about moving forward. Uh, so the next uh, mayor's announcement is uh, that yesterday was Martin Luther King Day. The city council uh, uh, is approving a proclamation that was given to today, but that was given to the organizers of that event. Uh, I was there uh, at the community center. It was acknowledged by the crowd at that event and very well received. Uh, Councilmember Boston, did you have an additional announcement? Yeah, I wanted to share some exciting news from our community development department, which is that 
thanks to their hard work, they just received a check of $160,000 back to our community development department uh, as a result of an old SB2 grant that they followed up on continuously from 2019. So I just wanted to give them acknowledgement of that new sum of dollars that will help to continue to support our department and our general fund. I can, thank you, thanks for the encouragement, but if we could keep the uh, encouragement in the, uh, from the audience uh, limited, thank you. Uh, so now we move on to the consent calendar. These are items that are considered routine and non-controversial, require no discussion, and are expected to have unanimous council approval. They may be acted in one motion in the form, as I will read them. There will be no separate discussion of these consent calendar items. However, the council, before it votes, can any council member can ask for an item to be removed from the consent calendar. The consent calendar items are 3A, ratifying the proclamation honoring and observing Dr. Martin Luther King Day that was declared on January 15th, 2024. Uh, uh, three, three B and three C have been removed. Uh, 3D, adopt a resolution declaring two police vehicles as surplus and authorizing the city manager to dispose of said equipment at auction. 3E, authorize the city manager to enter into, into a professional service agreement with Dixon Resources Unlimited for on-call parking consulting services not to exceed $30,000. And 3F, concerning our city council calendar, canceling the August 20 meeting and November 5 regular meetings, calling special meetings for January 22, February 10, and March 30, and uh, then establishing three special Saturday meetings at on June 1st, July 30th, and October 29th. Are there any consent items that anyone wishes to remove? Uh, yes, Mayor. Uh, as yes. we discussed earlier today, I'm gonna request that agenda item 3F uh, be removed from consent for discussion by the full council. Uh, and then uh, I do have a question, a clarification for the city manager around item 3E. Um, I'm hoping the city manager could explain the scope of said consulting services articulated uh, with as to Dixon parking. Would you like to respond to that city manager to see if she, if a council member would like to request it be removed or if she's satisfied? We can respond to 3E. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I'm not sure your microphone is on. Can you hear me? Okay. <laughs> Madam, uh, kindly, uh, if you'd uh, not make comments from the audience, it is uh, appreciated. Uh, they're positive. It is nevertheless somewhat disruptive. So the best person to respond to 3E is Chief Gregory. So Chief, can you come on up? And... Hello, Chief. Hi. Councilmember Kelman would like you to clarify something on regarding the Dixon contract. Okay. I want to know what the scope is. Um, oh, what the, so it's on an as needed basis. Uh, there's no specific project, but as Wayne, I was hoping that he'd be here today so I could in, uh, introduce him to you. But as we move forward with some of the projects that we have on our future list of to do's for parking, um, their expertise and knowledge of our city is invaluable. So there's no, we might not spend any money out of that agreement, but it's there in case we need it because Wayne is a one, one man show and still learning and getting his feet wet here in Sausalito. So it's an insurance policy. So I maybe, sorry, just a little clarification. <clears throat> so what, but what, what, what do they actually do? I mean, are they, are they parking uh, services? Are they coming up with a parking, um, the, the fees involved? Are they doing, doing what Elliot used to do? What's the- So they would help Wayne, who is 
the new Elliot with tasks and projects um, and provide their information, you know, the information that they know about Sausalito, as well as the information that they have on parking in, you know, California and the United States. Um, so they would be that key expert opinion on how to move forward, whether it's, you know, contracts with ALPR on vehicles, um, anything and everything that we could um, deal with, they'd be, they, they're the go-to. They're the, the front runners in the information um, that parking has, you know, to offer. Okay. I, I won't ask any more questions of this, but maybe city manager, we could get a sort of a, an update on a consent item or maybe a one-way communication about so the parking services within the police department so that we fully understand that scope. So uh, happy to do that, uh, Councilmember Kelman. Uh, we can give you some sense of um, what we think we might be needing to do in the future uh, and really round out the information that you're asking for tonight because there are many unknowns in terms of parking, but I will say this. Uh, the parking enterprise in the city is a $3 million operation, and in order to manage that properly right now with a new person uh, to provide the support for that is why Dixon is being asked to help. Uh, one of the things that uh, we also want to do is be transparent because some of these contracts are essentially within the city manager's authority, but this is something that we needed to bring to council for council's full understanding of what we're trying to do. Uh, so uh, I'll give you an example of a different uh, help that we could get from um, uh, Dixon. If we have a particular project that is challenged by parking uh, to have some analysis done quickly and readily by someone that's a professional, whether it's uh, a redo of the Valhalla, whether it's looking at technology around our parking lots, uh, Dixon would be a good go-to person to have on call as necessary. So that's why I would recommend support for this tonight. Okay, thank you, City Manager. So let me just make this request publicly then. We have a strategic uh, session coming up on February 10th. If you could include a report out on uh, parking, I'm sure it'll be interesting for us as to revenue as well um, at that session. I think that would be very helpful. So we have a little bit more granularity and clarity about what exactly this type of contract entails. Can do. Thank you. So, Councilmember Kelman, I heard you went to both 3F off. Do you, is 3E okay to stay on consent? Yes. All right. So, 3F will become item 5G on the business items. Uh, and we will now entertain public comment on the consent calendar. Anyone wishing, can, City Manager, can you please provide City? Is that what you recommend? All right. We're going to take a five minute recess, uh, please, just to get direction on. Uh, Recording in progress. Uh, ready for uh, public comment on the consent agenda. City Clerk, would you please advise on how to make public comment? Yeah, if, if anybody in, in the uh, audience wants to make uh, public comment, there are some speaker cards located over at the desk by the TV. You can uh, fill it out and bring it back over here. If you're on Zoom, there's a raise hand function, and you can just uh, press that. So right now in the house, uh, we have public comment on consent. We'll bet. Ms. McDougal, the city, the city clerk called on you. Thank you very much. Babette McDougal and 15 Girard Avenue. I would just like to say that I would like to see this relationship go forward. It sounds promising, especially because the data is not just available to you within a closed session environment or within the police department confines, but hopefully that it will be shared with the citizens as well so that they, we all 
may become better educated to the importance of parking to the city. And if there were ever some changes to be brought forward in the near future or medium term future, then there's a better immediate understanding of the implications of the trade-offs and how to mitigate that. Thank you. Next speaker on Zoom, Kieran Culligan. Hi there. Good evening, Kieran Culligan. I'm a resident, Salcedo resident. I'm also a board member on our public schools nonprofit foundation. And in honor of item 3A, I just wanted to call out uh, one of the most shining examples of diversity in our school is our public school, named after none other than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And so with the, the, the timing is uh, important because on February 2nd, we have a gala upcoming that's gonna support the school. It's the first we've done with our new unified public school and all of the proceeds go to rise up to support the foundation. So the whole community is welcome. Council members, people listening live, um, city staff, we'd love to see you there. There's gonna be food from J Davy Jones, a big auction, music from Sips and Sounds in Marin City, and everything goes to support school programs. So please check out riseup94965.org. And the link is also in currents. So thank you and for honoring Dr. King on this day. Seeing no further speakers. Seeing no further speakers, we'll close public comment. And uh, I would look for a motion to approve the consent agenda. I move we approve. Well, we have to move three up somewhere. It's already been moved to 5G. Okay. I move we approve uh, consent item, consent calendar items, 3A, 3B, 3D, and 3E. Uh, 3B was removed. So it would be. Oh, sorry. 3A, 3D, and 3E. Is there a second? Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. All right. The consent calendar is approved unanimously. There are no public hearing items. The next agenda item is our business agenda, 5A, a study session and presentation regarding the draft environmental impact report for housing element programs. We will turn the podium over to our director, Brendan Pitt. Thank you very much, Mayor, and good evening to you, council members, members of the public and staff. Uh, as always, happy to be here this evening, this time, to introduce item 5A regarding a study session and presentation on the city's draft environmental impact report for housing element programs. As council may recall, on January 30th of last year, the city council adopted the city's sixth cycle housing element. I will note, once certified by HCD, City of Sausalito was the first and only jurisdiction in Marin County with an adopted and compliant housing element. Following adoption and certification of the element, the city directed DeNovo Planning Group to prepare a housing element programs EIR to address the implementation of programs of rezoning discussed in the housing element. Since that time, DeNovo have been leading the environmental evaluation with specific focus on certain programs, those being 4, 8, 16, 17, and 19, and DeNovo will be speaking to those programs in more detail during their presentation. Uh, DeNovo staff as well as staff, have now completed the draft environmental impact report for the project. On January 5, DeNovo filed the notice of completion with OPR, that's the Office of Planning and Research, and the city filed the notice of completion 
um, excuse me, uh, the notice of availability to comply with other state noticing requirements. Based on the January 5 release date, the 45-day comment period on the EIR will end on February 20th, 2024. For those interested, the draft EIR is published on the State Clearinghouse website, as well as on the city's housing element webpage. Uh, as now, we, as we are now within the public comment period for the EIR, uh, DeNovo and city staff have coordinated the study session to provide high-level information on the purpose and structure of the draft environmental impact report and to solicit any comments from city council, members of the public, or any other interested parties. So I'll note, while the consultants and staff can provide clarification on the process and the purpose of the draft environmental impact report, we will not be providing answers or responses to comments provided at this meeting. Rather, all questions and comments provided will be included in the record and will be appropriately addressed prior to the adoption of the EIR. So to ensure an accurate record, we have a court reporter here in attendance this evening who will be transcribing your comments. To support their efforts, please make sure to speak clearly and slowly when making your comments and to please provide your name for the record. With that said, to complement the item, we are joined here this evening by both Beth Thompson and Christina Irwin of DeNovo Planning Group. Thank you for virtually attending this evening, and they will be providing a short presentation on the draft EIR and next steps. I believe Ms. Thompson will be speaking first. So Beth, the floor is yours. Director Phipps, uh, if you might just give the council members an opportunity to ask you any questions before we get too deep into the presentation, but there may not be any, but let's just see. Do any council members have a question for Director Phipps? I do. <clears throat> Vice Mayor Cox. Director Phipps, I wanted to clarify um, the purpose of the EIR. So the EIR is to perform an environmental analysis of the housing element that we've adopted. Correct. Correct. And so there's not, as part of this process, we're not modifying any of the programs, policies, um, or content of the housing element that we've already adopted and that has already been certified. Absolutely, you're 100% you're correct. And, and that's an excellent question. Um, the programs that were already adopted and certified by council is what is the subject of this environmental impact report. And then I noted with interest in the executive summary that it was actually not possible for us to perform some of this analysis prior to adopting the housing element because some, uh, some of the um, development that may occur and other factors were not yet known until we actually started our implementation process. Would that be an accurate statement? I, I believe that is an accurate statement, um, Vice Mayor, and, and thank you very much for the comment. You know, there were certain things that came, um, that became more clear as we move forward in the process. And so really this timing is ideal in the process. I agree. All right, thank you. Those were my overview questions. Are there other questions? Council Member Kelman. Yes, uh, thank you for being here and nice to see the DeNovo team. Um, so in light of your comments about uh, some of the comments and with the court reporter, what type of comments would you like to receive from council? What would be most helpful and can you help us fashion some of our comments questions? I invite council to provide any comments as they see fit. Um, based on the draft EIR that we have provided. I'm, I'm not sure that I understand. Okay, so we're not, as, as Councilman Cox just, or Vice Mayor Cox just mentioned, we're not um, changing you know, the opportunity sites. We're not changing the programs, the policies. Um, and so comments on the program or policy would be 
uh, inappropriate or irrelevant at this time, right? That would be the type of guidance you might give us. Correct. Um, you know, that being said, we're very open to any comments that council has. And um, I'm not in a position to restrict those comments, but I, I agree with your assessment. Thank you. <laughs> yes, uh, just as a follow on, uh, there is included in the EIR a mitigation and monitoring program, some recommended mitigation measures. And so those are new to us and comments on those would be perhaps more germane than commenting on the content of the housing element. Would you agree? Certainly. So, so comments as to the set of opportunity sites or inventory sites included in the element, I would generally say are not relevant to this study session. What is relevant is the new document that has been generated um, by DeNovo Planning Group in collaboration with staff and legal counsel. And the, the means or actions taken in connection with some of those mitigation um, strategies that we've mentioned, you know, all of that would be helpful. And I'm seeing- I see the uh, city attorney is- City attorney jumping on his video, which means he has something to say. Yeah, and uh, in response to one of the comments, uh, well, one of the council member questions earlier, um, you know, the purpose of the, the draft EIR today is to study the programs of implementation. They are not necessarily to study the actual adoption of the housing element. So we are we are analyzing the environmental effects of the programs that are laid out in the housing element in order to best determine how to undertake those programs. So that's just a clarifying point. Thank you, city attorney. Director Phipps, I had a question. You said that the city of Sausalito is the only municipality in Marin to do its uh, adopt its housing element by the required statutory deadline. Not doing so, my understanding is, would have exposed Sausalito to potential penalties, including something called the builder's remedy. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, it also creates a longer time period for the city to adopt required um, upzonings or amendments to the general plan and, and the zoning ordinance. Uh, city of Sausalito is a result of our prompt action or, or appropriately timed action has three years. Um, if we did not adopt within the state uh, timeline, we would be subject to a one-year rezoning timeline. So all the other municipalities of Marin, with the exception of Sausalito, now have that penalty opposed? Uh, I won't be making that statement. Um, they're exposed to it as potentially. But it is more likely that they will be exposed than less likely. And they're also potentially exposed to the builder's remedy. If they did not receive a um, letter of substantial compliance from the state within 120 days after January 30th, 2023, that is correct. Thank you, Director Phipps. Are there other questions for Director Phipps before we move on to the consultant? Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Welcome, DeNovo, to the podium. And Are again, yes, so I will uh, open the floor to Beth Thompson. Ms. Thompson, welcome. Oh, thank you. And if I may share my screen, that would be great. Thank you. Well, good evening, Mayor, members of the council. It's a pleasure to be back before you with the um, draft program EIR for the housing element programs implementation. And so we'll go over a few items tonight. We'll discuss the housing element programs project. So what this project specifically entails, we'll discuss what an environmental impact report or EIR is, 
the findings of the housing element programs draft EIR, and then also let the community know how to comment on the project and the draft EIR. This is, there is a long public comment period. So we are in the midst of that public comment period. So tonight's not the only opportunity to provide input on this. So there will be opportunities to provide comments in writing as well as additional meetings to consider the adoption of the project and the response to the comments we've received on the project. So the housing element programs project focuses on implementing specific programs of the housing element. So it doesn't look at the housing element as a whole, rather it looks at the programs where we have enough detail and the city's ready to take the step of considering adoption of the implementing actions for those programs. And so the implementation programs that we're looking at are programs four, eight, 16, 17, and 19. And implementing these programs will result in three primary actions, a general plan amendment, primarily um, revisions to the land use element, as well as some to the circulation element and some other of the elements, revisions to the zoning ordinance, so revising Title 10 of the city's municipal code, and then also adoption of objective design and development standards that would add Title 10A to the city's municipal code. And I'll just go through each of the programs briefly and how what what those programs entail and how that feeds into these actions that the city council will be asked to consider in the future. So program four is probably the most interesting program to most people. This ensures that the city has adequate sites to accommodate the regional housing need allocation throughout the planning period. So this program, program four, requires the city to redesignate and rezone enough sites to accommodate its regional housing needs allocation or RENA. And so during the housing element process, we identified the capacity the city had to accommodate housing on its existing zoned sites for housing, as well as projects that are being considered and accommodating some development through ADUs and SB9 units. However, there was still a shortfall. So program four identifies how the city will close that shortfall and meet that gap to ensure that you have adequate sites to meet the state's requirements. And so program four would both amend the general plan to establish overlay designations. So your land use map will have new overlay designations identified on the land use map. And then the zoning code will also be amended to establish new overlay zones. And the zoning map will be amended to identify where these overlay zones will be applied. And there's four different types of overlay zones. There's the housing 49 zone, and this allows development of housing at up to 49 units per acre. That's applied to about 4.2 acres the housing 70 overlay zone, which will allow development up to 70 units per acre. And this is applied to about 2.6 acres. The housing mixed use zone that would also allow up to 49 units per acre. And then the housing mixed use 70 zone that will allow up to 70 units per acre. Now the two mixed use zones are required to accommodate 100% residential projects, and they do require a minimum of 85% of residential uses. So when future development happens on sites that have been have the overlay zone applied, that development has to be consistent with the overlay zone. So the underlying zone doesn't apply as much as the overlay zone does because that establishes the minimum densities that will be required for development of those sites and then also the maximum densities that could be accommodated. The zoning does include some requirements for the development standards and then the bulk of the development standards that that will address the development of these well, sites are contained in the odds. Just a moment, Ms. Yes. Thompson, there's a question from the court reporter. Oh. 
So, Ms. Thompson, we have a court reporter in the audience who's um, trying to keep up with you. So if you'd kindly just slow down a little bit. Absolutely. And it probably would help to turn her microphone up as well. So thank you. Do you need her to repeat anything, court reporter? Could you please back up for about 30 seconds and and uh, start again? Sure. I'll, I'll just go back to the, the four overlay zones. So there will be four overlay zones established in both the general plan and in the city's zoning ordinance. And there's the housing 49 zone. This will allow development of up to 49 units per acre, and it's applied to about 4.2 acres in the city. The housing 70 zone, this will allow up to 70 units per acre, and it has to be applied to at least 2.6 um, acres in the city. The housing mixed-use 49 zone, which allows both residential and non-residential uses at up to 49 units per acre. And this will be applied to 10.1 acres in the city, or almost 10.2 acres. And then the housing mixed use 70 zone that allows up to 70 units per acre. And this is applied to about 0.3 um, acres in the city. And both of the mixed use zones do allow 100% residential uses. So part of the requirement under state laws when you're rezoning to accommodate the city's um, the, the gap in the arena, particularly for the very low and low income units, that you do allow 100% residential uses on those sites. And to ensure that the city gets enough residential density and does not have to seek additional sites in the future, a, a minimum requirement of 85% of residential uses is also required on those sites. So that's program four. Program eight also addresses accommodating the arena and it specifically looks at the public property conversion to housing. So there are a number of sites in the housing element that are city owned. And so implementing program eight would make those publicly owned sites available for development during the 2023 through 2031 planning period. And there are also a number of sites that are constrained by either, um, let me scroll down to the specific note, um, ordinance 1022, the fair traffic initiative or ordinance 1128. And so these specific sites would also go to a vote of the people for consideration. And so the housing element programs EIR does look at as part of the opportunity sites and as part of the sites that are being considered development of those sites and the environmental implications of those sites as well. Program 16 is a, a number of edits to the zoning ordinance. And this looks at changes that address design standards just to ensure that there's specific requirements and uh, clarify the procedure for projects that do not are not allowed to have discretionary review or do not require discretionary review, ensuring that the height limits and setbacks are adequate to accommodate the maximum densities identified by program four. And then a number of changes to accommodate a variety of housing types. And most of these housing types, such as emergency shelters, employee housing, low barrier navigation centers, transitional housing, supportive housing. These are these all have specific standards in state law. And so a lot of these changes are specifically to incorporate those requirements of state law into your zoning ordinance and to ensure that those are appropriately reflected and applied. And then we also ensure through the zoning ordinance amendments that the city is making those sites identified um, by program four available. So oh, any sorry, I know it's Ms. Thompson, I know it's a People speak at their natural gait, but the court reporter is struggling. To, okay, I'll, I'll slow down. Uh, so please repeat the last two sentences. Absolutely. So the program for, or program 16 does include changes to accommodate a variety of housing types. 
And these are mainly changes that reflect the requirements of state law to ensure that the city's standards for emergency shelter, employee housing, agricultural employee housing, low barrier navigation centers, transitional and supportive housing are consistent with those standards required under state law. So this, these uses are already allowed in the city because state law requires it. This just makes sure that the city's zoning ordinance does provide correct guidance to people who are interested in building these types of uses. Program 17 addresses implementing the state's density bonus law. Once again, these are specific requirements in state law that are mandatory, and so it just ensures that the city's zoning ordinance provisions reflect the current state law. The city's density bonus component of your zoning ordinance hasn't been updated for a while, so this just ensures that that's in sync with state law. And then program 19 addresses objective design and development standards, and you'll have a future workshop to really specifically discuss the objective design and development standards. The Housing Element Programs EIR does look at the sites where the objective design and development standards could be applied, primarily the overlay sites that are being identified, because these sites would have increased capacity with implementation of the Housing Element Programs. And the objective design and development standards apply to housing projects that qualify for expedited or streamlined ministerial review under state laws and to the housing projects on the opportunity sites. And the, these will provide the city with form-based development standards, and they're applicable specifically to new multi-unit developments in the existing multifamily and commercial mixed-use zones, so the R2 R3, commercial neighborhood, uh, commercial residential, and community commercial zones. And these, the changes for these existing zones basically reflect and implement the city's existing general plan and zoning ordinance standards. So they establish those standards in one place. They don't necessarily change how those, un how those uses are necessarily allowed, but they, they just reflect the current requirements for those and consolidate all of those in the objective design and development standards. So in the in the housing element programs EIR, we have a number of figures and there are sites throughout the city that are accommodated through implementation of these housing element programs. And the primary sites that are affected by the overlay zones are those sites that are highlighted as having a housing overlay. So you have sites in your housing element that are allowed to develop under your existing zoning and your existing general plan land use designations. And these wouldn't necessarily have any change in capacity with implementation of the housing element programs project. However, the sites that have the new housing overlay applied will have an increase in the capacity, both residential and then in some cases for some of the mixed use sites, some additional non-residential development as well. So regarding that capacity, the sure. housing element Ms. Thompson, again, uh, we just need you uh, to slow down a little bit. Did you miss anything, court reporter? So just pace yourself a little bit slower. This session is being recorded, but I understand that uh, there's a legal procedure for taking a official transcript. So if you would uh, kindly just proceed, but a little slower. Thank you. Thank you. So the housing element identified the capacity that was required to be accommodated or required to be uh, yeah, accommodated through the overlay sites to meet the city's regional housing need allocation. So in program four, there's a discussion of that realistic capacity. And so when the state's looking at the capacity 
of the city's sites, the state is not looking at the maximum possible development that could happen on those sites. The state is looking at what they consider a realistic capacity. So typically a reduced development potential to account for some component of the site potentially being used for infrastructure, not being able to be used to its fullest potential. So the housing element anticipated a total of three, um, 908 units would be accommodated through implementation of your existing sites, as well as implementation of the program for rezoning efforts for the opportunity sites. We, for the purposes of the environmental impact report, we look at the maximum density that would be allowed on those sites. So there's some additional capacity that could occur. So the program EIR looks at the potential for a total of 1,076 units on these sites to accommodate the maximum capacity that would be allowed at those maximum densities for each of the overlay categories. There's also the potential for an increase in non-residential square feet of about 16,852 square feet. So there's some additional non-residential capacity that's also evaluated in the Housing Element Program's EIR. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Christina Irwin, to talk about the Environmental Impact Report. Uh, thank you, Beth. I really appreciate it. Uh, good evening, council members. My name is Christina Irwin, um, and I'm going to talk with you about what an environmental impact report is and where we are in the process and how the public can uh, continue to engage in the commenting process. First of all, an environmental impact report is guided by the California Environmental Quality Act, also known as CEQA. And it is an informational document that identifies the potential environmental effects of implementing a project. And CEQA lays out uh, very clearly the elements that needs to be that need to be included in an EIR. So it is every document is guided by state policy. The EIR allows um, public participation and highly encourages public participation in the environmental review process. An EIR does not advocate or promote any project. What it is is a disclosure document for informational purposes so that decision makers can understand what the ramifications, the environmental ramifications of approving a project are. And if there are mitigation measures that are also required as part of the environmental analysis, those are disclosed uh, to the decision makers and the public as well. Um, as uh, both Beth and Brandon noted, no specific development projects are being proposed as part of this project. What is being proposed are rezoning efforts and implementation of the programs that Beth just shared. So where are we in the process? We kicked off the process, um, the CEQA process quite a while ago. We prepared what is called a notice of preparation, alerting the public that we will be preparing an environmental impact report that analyzes the environmental effects of the project. Following the issuance of that notice of preparation, there was a 30 day public comment period in which the public were invited to 
provide comments on the scope of the EIR. That is to say recommendations about what the EIR should analyze, should consider, um, and, and uh, disclose to the public in the document. We've taken those comments, we've evaluated them, and we are responding to those comments and um, performing the analysis as part of the draft EIR. As Brandon noted, we um, issued the draft EIR uh, on January 5th, so we are partway through the 45-day public review process. Uh, and these review timelines are guided by CEQA and um, we're complying with the law. Following the close of the public review cycle on February 20th, uh, we will prepare a final EIR. That document will include um, responses to the comments that we have received on the EIR, and it will also include a mitigation monitoring and reporting program that will lay out the mitigation measures that need to be implemented as part of the project, when they need to be implemented and by whom. And it's a way for the city to track actual implementation of the measures to reduce environmental effects. Following preparation of the final EIR, uh, the document and the project will go before uh, the decision makers for consideration of approval of the project and certification of the final EIR. Along with that, um, the council will consider the adoption of findings of fact and statement of overriding considerations, which lays out uh, what all of the effects of the project would be and um, some rationale about why the project should be approved, um, as well as the EIR uh, certified. Adoption of the mitigation monitoring and reporting program will be uh, considered. And after those processes are complete and the project is approved and the certification of the EIR has occurred, uh, we will issue a notice of determination, which is a statutory requirement to notify the public and the governor's office of planning and research that a project has been approved and final decision has been rendered. So, what is included in our EIR? CEQA dictates uh, the, the topical areas that should be considered and evaluated as part of a project. There's quite the list, I believe 17 uh, technical areas in, uh, in addition to mandatory findings of significance, including a disclosure of cumulative impacts and a description and analysis of potential project alternatives. So these topical areas are all included in the EIR. There are impact discussions for each of them, and where appropriate, there are also mitigation measures. We had some topical areas that we could um, mitigate to a less than significant level uh, once we added in mitigation. So that is to say the project would create a potentially significant impact. We would then apply mitigation to that impact and then make a determination 
about whether that mitigation measure reduces the impact below a level of significance, below specified thresholds that are identified in the EIR, or if mitigation would not get the impact below that threshold, and that is disclosed. In this case, we had four topical areas where mitigation would be required uh, to get impacts down to less than significant levels. Biological resources um, primarily address special status species, nesting birds, riparian habitat, and wildlife corridors. And the mitigation roughly um, for that topic is to uh, survey potential um, development sites as development proposals um, are uh, proposed later on down the line and evaluate whether or not these um, resources exist and then how to implement mitigation accordingly. Geology and soils, we identified a potentially significant impact to paleontological resources, also in the cumulative setting. Uh, that is really to say that uh, sometimes we don't know what an undiscovered resource is until we discover it in construction. So this is really a safety net and uh, mitigation outlines the procedures that are necessary uh, to uh, reduce impacts on potential finds of paleontological resources during construction activities. Hydrology and water quality uh, addressed erosion and siltation, as well as a number of other items that are uh, discussed in the EIR. But um, mitigation was identified to reduce erosion and siltation on project sites by following stormwater uh, pollution prevention plans and, um, and having uh, low impact development standards followed and um, really ad adhering to a number of the city policies that are already in place. Noise and vibration identified a potential construction related vibration impact. Um, and that is to say that um, sometimes when uh, construction is too close to adjacent buildings, uh, there can be a vibration impact, a noticeable impact. Uh, that distance though is very, very small, uh, like 26 feet, I believe. So you have to be really, really close and loud, um, but their measure lays out the um, plan to mitigate those impacts should they occur. Now, there were some topical areas where we had to apply mitigation as is required by CEQA to apply mitigation to any potential significant impacts. But even after we did that, we determined that the impacts would still be significant and unavoidable. That is to say that the impact would exceed the thresholds that are established in the EIR. One of those areas of um, significance finding was for cultural and tribal cultural resources. For all of the topics um, under that um, heading level, we determined that there would be significant and unavoidable impacts. The concept of um, potentially disturbing a historic resource as the city has a number of historical areas and historic buildings that are noted and disclosed in the EIR, 
but any um, damage or destruction of a historical resource cannot be rectified. Once it's lost, it's lost. And we've determined that that is a significant and unavoidable impact. Archaeological resources and human remains are um, of a similar vein in that um, we have disclosed where we know archaeological resources are, um, but sometimes you run into things that are previously undiscovered. Um, and although the mitigation for archaeological resources lays out a very logical plan about how to address such a find, and the um, potential for finding human remains, although low, uh, is also laid out as a mitigation measure um, as dictated by state law. Uh, any sort of a loss to those resources would be uh, significant and unavoidable. That is to say, we couldn't get it below a threshold. For tribal cultural resources and historic tribal cultural resources, uh, the city worked with the Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria um, and consulted with the tribe as is required by state law. Uh, we worked with them to help identify potential mitigation measures that could reduce potential impacts to known resources. Um, but similarly, any loss of such a resource would be uh, significant and um, potentially um, could not be uh, replicated. So we have determined that that is a significant and unavoidable impact. Transportation and circulation analyzes vehicle miles traveled, and that is in compliance with state law. Um, what we determined is even though implementation of the project, the rezoning of these sites would reduce the vehicle miles traveled for both employees and residents, that reduction would not get uh, below the threshold VMT number that is uh, required. That's 15% below the regional average. And therefore, the impact would be significant and unavoidable. In utilities and service systems, we identified a potentially significant impact to water supply facilities and water supply. The reason that you're seeing that is not that there isn't enough water. What it does say is that the Marin Municipal Water District uh, has an urban water management plan that does not yet reflect all of the housing element updates that are going on within its service area. And as these housing element updates are being approved, the, the district will rightly analyze the effects of adding on those new customers and uh, determine what facilities are needed to ensure adequate water supply. Because it hasn't been added to the urban water management plan um, within the uh, Marin Municipal Water District's jurisdiction, conservatively, we determined that that would be a significant impact. So that is an overview of where our impacts and the types of mitigation um, landed us in the EIR analysis.
moving forward, um, we are in the middle of our 45-day draft EIR um, public comment period. Tonight, we are having an informational meeting um, and welcoming public comment. The draft EIR public comment period will close on February 20th. And then moving forward, we hope to have certifications uh, before you in late spring 2024, because that's where we are headed. In order to comment on the draft EIR, we request um, written comments um, that can be in the form of email or uh, regular mail. Um, and the address and addressee um, is on the screen here. Um, comments can be sent to Brandon Phipps, and his email address is bphipps, that's spelled B-P-H-I-P-P-S, at Sausalito.gov. And we'll be accepting those comments until February 20th. Finally, um, to disclose where all of the documents related to the housing elements programs are, those documents are on the City of Sausalito's sixth cycle housing element update webpage. And that can be found here at housingelementsmarin.org slash city dash of dash Sausalito. Um, and that concludes our presentation about um, the EIR and the project itself. So I will uh, turn it back over to um, asking for co public comment. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Irwin. Uh, questions from the dais, please. Let's start with uh, Councilmember Blowski. Thank you very much, Mayor Sobieski, and thank you um, to our consultant team and to Director Phipps for your exhaustive presentation and your hard work on the EIR preparation. I had a few questions in particular about the mitigation programs that you mentioned. Um, I'm, I'm quite concerned about some of the significant and unavoidable impacts that you mentioned when you were going over um, some that may come up, in particular the tribal resources and human remains, for example. Uh, can you give an idea or a guide into what we might do to mitigate those impacts, even though they may be unavoidable? You're muted. Uh, is anyone going to respond to Councilmember Blasting's question? There we go. Yes, um, and thank you for asking your question about um, mitigation and particularly cultural resources mitigation. So to address um, archeological resources and tribal cultural resources, and you mentioned human remains as well, um, I will talk first about um, tribal cultural resources um, and, and how we might mitigate that. Um, mitigation measures are identified um, in the executive summary and throughout the EIR. But for this topic, um, the types of mitigation that we would um, implement here are to prepare a tribal cultural resources awareness brochure and a training program for all personnel involved with um, developing actual projects on the ground. Um, and that is to alert construction crews, what type of resources are sensitive, what they look like, um, and 
um, also involve um, the local um, Native American tribes that have been in the area and have expressed interest in working with the city. Um, and so the type of program um, for the training is laid out um, in mitigation measure 3.4-2. Um, further, we would implement an avoidance and minim minimization um, element to that, which is to first avoid any resource that is found, stop construction on the site within a certain distance, and notify a construction contractor and notify the city as well. Um, and there, from there, we lay out um, exactly what would happen on the ground um, about how to avoid or minimize um, effects on resource. For human remains, it's a little bit more straightforward um, in that the, the, the laws in place require notification of the coroner within a certain amount of time. Um, and if um, you know the human remains are determined to be of Native American origin, uh, the contractors and the city must contact the Native American Heritage Commission within a certain time frame, so that there's a lot of notification that happens from there. Um, and then determination about how to actually deal with the resources are also laid out in the measures. Yeah, I don't know if I, I imagine that you were briefed that there wasn't uh, that we did find a former Miwok um, burial ground in Sausalito. So I just wanted to be especially mindful of that as we're conducting the EIR because it's something that we've seen um, previously. Uh, also on the risk mitigation piece, I'm quite concerned about the potential impact to water facilities given the climate challenges that we're already facing with respect to the future of water and what that looks like. Could you, for the for purposes of the public to better understand, talk about what that might mean in terms of not being included in the MMWD's current plan and what we as a community would need to do? Well, I will first say that water supply planning is a joint effort between uh, local municipalities and their water districts. Um, the city of Sausalito is clearly describing what the anticipated growth in the city will be. And that has happened both as part of the 2040 general plan um, and now here as implementation of the housing element programs. Um, MMWD will bear the some responsibility at least to update the urban water management plan to look at the jurisdictions within their service area and do the hard math to determine exactly where the water is going to come from, what the demands look like, whether or not supply is able to meet those demands. Uh, close coordination with the district doesn't hurt um, and can be quite um, helpful, especially when providing just additional information about how the city anticipates to grow. Thank you. And then I have another question with regards to the public comment and response time, because we've received a number of correspondences from the community about wanting as much transparency as possible into the EIR process and being given significant opportunity to weigh in. So in addition to you just sharing online the page where we submit comments, thank you for doing that and for providing Director Phipps's email. 
Where will those comments be available so that all community members might review what their friends and neighbors have posted? And what will the process be for us in reviewing those comments before we approve the final EIR? And how will they be taken into consideration in your assessment? So those written comments are going to be gathered and collated. We are going to number each of the letters and um, identify the specific comments in each of the letters as many letters have many comments about different topical areas. We will include those letters, all of them, including this public transcript in the final EIR. We will address all of the comments in writing in the final EIR. So the public and decision makers are able to see both the comment that was provided by the public and uh, our response to those questions or comments. Thank you very much. I don't have any further questions. Thanks again for your hard work on the EIR and the housing element. Vice Thank Mayor, you. Vice Mayor Cox. Thank you. Um, for members of the public, I did just wanna point out that the um, mitigation measures are contained in the executive summary. This is a hundreds of pages document. They're in the executive summary uh, pages 24 to 51. Um, I wanted to follow up on the question about the water. When we first were assigned ARENA um, by our regional housing needs analysis quota by uh, the Housing and Community Development Department, um, we communicated that to uh, Marin Municipal Water District. Isn't that right? That is my understanding, yes. Yes, and we in fact shared our plan, our general plan with uh, all of the agencies for comment. Isn't that right? Including- I believe that is also correct, which is excellent practice. And so by sharing our planned growth with MMWD, we are giving them the opportunity to weigh in and communicate to us if in anticipation of a particular project, they anticipate they will not be able to provide a will serve letter. Isn't that right? MMWD is welcome to comment on this EIR. Our analysis is included um, and demonstrates what the demand for water will be as part of implementation of the programs. Um, and we welcome their comments. Um, and yet, um, you at impact 3.15-2, you classify this impact as significant and unavoidable. Indeed, we did. And the rationale behind that is impact 3.15-2 is a cumulative impact that will look at all of um, these areas within Marin Municipal's water district service area. Um, in that case, we have looked at um, as far out as we can um, as part of this project um, and what is known at the top at right now about moving forward with other projects within their service area. Um, our analysis um, is conservative in that um, 
we are looking to identify the maximum possible impact. Um, it is important to be conservative here um, on such an important topic. Um, and that is why we concluded a significant and unavoidable impact because out of an abundance of caution, we think that the district should update their urban water management plan to identify capacity in the cumulative scenario to serve future regional development. And because of that, that their current plan does not reflect that yet, conservatively, we are concluding a significant impact. But it is avoidable if they update their urban management plan. So it's not unavoidable. Can I just chime in? It's unavoidable in the context that the city itself cannot adopt the updated urban water management plan. So that has to go through Marin Water. And so this reflects that that this is out of the city's control, that the Marin Waters plan needs to address the arena for the other jurisdictions in Marin. There are only several areas that are excluded. So they they have to plan for that additional water. And so you could include a mitigation measure, the city would not be able to fully implement nor enforce it. So I will say that we objected to our RENA number on the basis that we had concerns that MMWD would be unable to meet all of the water needs of 724 new units in Sausalito together with all of the other new units required throughout Marin. And that was, and that, and isn't it true that the um, EIR adopted in support of uh, Plan Bay Area uh, found that was not an, an unavoidable um, uh, um, impact. So you bring I, up a good, go ahead, Beth. No, go, up, go right ahead, Christina. That's fine. So you bring up a good point about needing to look at regional development. Um, Plan Bay Area, as you know, is an enormous uh, regional undertaking and does um, identify a number of impacts and conclusions, even though some of those that are unavoidable um, or could be mitigated. Yeah, and I, I would suggest that this is an issue that would be more appropriate for us to respond to in writing in responses to comments. Okay, um, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll curtail that discussion, but I do want to turn to a similar issue with um, Mar uh, Sausalito Marin City Sanitary District. So you also uh, classify that impact at 3.15-1 as significant and unavoidable. Um, but um, that plant was just completely revamped and upgraded, and there are plans to close that system. And so the likelihood of that of any development exceeding the capacity of that system appear to be remote. And so can you explain why you considered that to be a significant and unavoidable impact? Thank you. I'm happy to clarify our conclusions on impact 3.15-1. The impact addresses a number of utilities, water, wastewater treatment, storm drainage, electricity, and the like. For water, we conclude it's significant and unavoidable, but for wastewater, um, storm drain capacity, 
electricity and power, we concluded that those are less than significant impacts. So the table at 3.15-1 says the level of significance after mitigation is significant and unavoidable. It does because it identifies um, the level of significance before mitigation. And we tried to be transparent with our conclusions about explaining which things would be significant and unavoidable. We concluded a significant and unavoidable impact due to the water issue. But this is in the after mitigation column. So in I, entitled level of significance after mitigation, it says significant and unavoidable. Yes, ma'am. And that's correct for water and determinations were made for wastewater, storm drain, and electricity, that the impact would already be less than significant. There's no need for mitigation measure. So I'm just pointing out, I think there's a typo in your table because under the wastewater section, it says significant and unavoidable after mitigation. Thank you. We'll take that comment uh, and clarify our text. Thank you. Vice Mayor, what page is that on? Just so that we That's can note and take a look. Page ES-49. Thanks. Okay, and then my last question has to do with program four and your slide presentation at slide four where you listed the um, range of densities for the overlay zones, housing-49, housing-70, housing mixed-use 49, and housing mixed-use 70. And you listed a range of density between 43 and 49 for housing 49, between 50 and 70 for housing 70, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm sure you're aware of the case of Martinez versus City of Clovis from May of 2023, in which the court held that zoning, a zoning overlay that allowed both high density and lower density options did not satisfy housing element law requirements for minimum density to be established for sites designated to accommodate a carryover portion of the RENA allocation. And I wanted to be sure that in your opinion, this range of densities in program four does not violate housing element law in the way the city of Clovis's housing element was found to violate housing element law. And, and that is correct. So the modifications to the zoning ordinance are made to require minimum densities. So where you have an overlay zone and you allow development at lesser densities based on, on the underlying zone, I think that would be problematic under Clovis. But given that you will be establishing a minimum density requirement that meets the standards of the government code for these rezoned sites, it should not be an issue. Okay. Thank you. Those were my questions. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Mayor. Council Member Kelman. Thank you. Hi, guys. Um, thank you for all your hard work. Uh, it's a little follow-on with uh, prior questions here. Let me start with my favorite topic, um, sea level rise. So uh, I'm looking at um, uh, impact 3.10-2, uh, which provides implementation of the housing element programs would not conflict with any land use plan, policy, or regulation adopted for the purpose of avoiding or mitigating an environmental effect. Um, I am just uh, curious as to how something like this interacts with SB 272, which is the new statewide law requiring 
um, that uh, a local government has to have a sea level rise plan on or for January 1st, 2034, but it also requires that BCDC and uh, the other regulators must have a plan in place by 2024. And so since this is not final, uh, and your conclusion is that there is uh, no significant impact, I'm wondering how we should be thinking about a topic like sea level rise with these uh, pending uh, requirements coming up at the end of the year. Yeah, I would say thank you for your comment and for noting that uh, there are pending requirements out there in the future. Um, two things. One, um, we have a greenhouse gases chapter um, that also talks about climate change and the effects of that. That is section 3.7 in our EIR. Um, and I will let um, Beth talk a little bit more about the um, upcoming changes to state law. And so where you have upcoming changes to state law, those aren't adopted regulations that the project currently has to comply with. So there's not a conflict in the context of the EIR. Definitely in term of the city's planning and developing a, a program to address sea level rise, you do want to consider where you're allowing development and how that development is structured. Okay, so the EIR is drafted wouldn't consider um, so, because I know we intentionally, of course, didn't put anything in a FEMA flood map zone, but the county and the state have overlays indicating potential flooding areas under one of six sea level rise scenarios. The EIR doesn't speak to any of that at all. I'm wondering, should it, and if so, where? So typically, we would not speak to that in an EIR. There's specific thresholds for looking at flooding impacts. We look at the 100-year floodplain. We don't necessarily look at, at other iterations of that. And that's something we can definitely address in the final EIR. OK. I think the just commentary, I think 272 is intended to update our thinking around FEMA flood maps, which are extremely antiquated and out of date. Um, Yes. Okay. So let me just move on then. Um, so you mentioned, uh, Christina, the greenhouse gas emissions section, and I know that uh, impact 3.7-3, less than significant. Um, to, to clarify, does that conclusion evaluate uh, greenhouse gas emission increase both from vehicles and from concrete and other building materials? Concrete being one of the largest emitters of GHG emissions in the world. Yeah, at this time, um, because there are no specific projects proposed, like we don't have a building proposed under this project, we are evaluating um, primarily vehicle emissions um, and then usage emissions after that that are associated with things like energy. Um, so that is what is included there. We don't differentiate specifically by um, the source such as concrete. Well, let me, let me ask you slightly differently though. When you reach the conclusion that it's not significant, you are either mitigating or saying that the causation is not significant. So what causation are you dismissing as not significant? 
what our conclusion determines is that the um, emissions are below the threshold of significance. That's what the conclusion reflects, but we can take a look at the text and see if there's some clarifications that we could make. Yeah, the emissions from what I think would be relevant here, given the city's existing low action emission plan and climate action plan, uh, which are part of uh, the city's guidance. Uh, okay, um, back to a question that the vice mayor had. Um, in addition to asking about water in our RENA appeal letter, we also- uh, Council members, um, I'm sorry, can I jump in here a second? I've been trying to unmute. Uh, my name is Sarah Oswitz. I'm your deputy uh, city attorney working for Sergio Rudin. Sure, welcome. I apologize for jumping in just like that. I just haven't been able to get the system unmuted and I wanted to uh, respond to a couple of points you just made and try to assist you in, in giving you a bigger uh, picture to the your causation question. Fantastic. So the first thing I wanted to say is that this and and we this wasn't part of our earlier discussion, but we we can certainly share this with you. There are two different kinds of EIRs, project level EIRs that certainly would look at something, for instance, like the amount of concrete needed to build a roadway, an office building, a warehouse, or a programmatic EIR where we don't actually have a specific project proposed at all. And we're looking basically citywide, some programmatic EIRs are specific plan areas, but the information level, it, it's too macro for the type of specific um, analysis that, that you're referencing. And the purpose of a programmatic EIR is to essentially allow the city in future to look at a project and say, well, we didn't anticipate that level of concrete. That's problematic. That's more of an impact than we anticipated in our overarching GHG analysis. So you cannot rely on this EIR for that project. You will need to do a supplemental or subsequent or additional environmental review. But for the purposes of the housing element implementation program, there are no specific projects. There is no specific impact. It's just a general concept of what if the maximum capacity of dwelling units were built in certain areas of the city that were walked through by both Beth and Christina. And so, yes, absolutely, these issues can all be addressed in greater detail. And, and any comment that you might want to submit the um, planning and uh, land use planning and sequel planning consultants can work on addressing those in the final AR, but only to the extent that, uh, I guess the best way to say this is, this is an 80,000 foot document. And some of these questions are two feet questions. Thank you, Sarah, for that perspective. I appreciate that um, point of view. Um, I'm going to uh, carry on. So uh, just going back then to the letter that uh, we wrote on appeal. Uh, we talked about water. Um, we also mentioned uh, geologic hazards and uh, the the slope of of the community in large part. And my question is not to be too specific as to the EIR, but I am wondering how the EIR handles that as a geologic resource within the city and a known geologic resource within the city, that, that being very steep hillsides in excess of 30 and 40%. So... 
when the city was going through the housing element development process and identifying opportunity sites and potential areas for rezoning, that was one of the considerations about which sites were added to the site's inventory list. If an area was simply too steep to build on, it was eliminated um, as a potential opportunity site. And that information is included in Appendix D of your housing element. Um, and there is kind of a checklist of things that were considered um, when identifying the sites. That said, um, slopes, um, landslides, instability, expansive soils, um, those were all addressed in the geology and soils section, section 3.6, um, and disclosed about what types of soils, what types of hazards may be present. Um, Great. So, Christina, last question then. So then 3.6 would be the section that would include anything about subsidence? Correct. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Any other questions from the dais? All right, seeing none, in a moment we'll open public comment, but I received a request to have a little bio break, so we'll stay in a recess for five minutes, and we will reconvene at uh, 8.48, and uh, you may use in the public the Recording stopped. have an interest in making a public comment to uh, raise your hand and or submit a public comment uh, slip to the city clerk. Uh, provide the public instructions on how to provide public comment on this item. All right, members of the public who would like to comment, you can fill out one of the speaker cards over by the television on that desk. Uh, bring that over here, and uh, we'll call you uh, when it's your turn. If you're on Zoom, you can use the raise hand function, and we'll call you. So let's start. Sorry. We'll start with uh, Babette McDougall. Thank you. I have a number of questions. First of all, may I just ask, were you able to see the letter I submitted, late arriving mail? Did you see it? Thank you. So um, appreciate that. Um, so it was meant to be sort of a broad overview of some of the problems that have truly vexed the housing element round this time compared to previous years. Did I understand correctly from this presentation that the public comment period actually began on January 5? Because to best of my knowledge and those of my neighbors, and I've had four meetings today that included this housing element, public meeting or you know meetings around town. And none of us got this thing until last weekend. I mean, we didn't find it until last weekend. So did I misunderstand that? I just wanted to ask that and I realize you're even though your document that says that you're from the dais have said that you have adopted a policy of not responding to public comment directly, there's nothing in a policy that I was given via the Public Records Act that actually supports that. There's only one bullet in that whole thing that addresses the public at all, and it says, please fill out the slip. So I don't quite understand why we're not talking to the public. Traditionally, we have always responded. So that's just something to think about. And the reason for tendering the letter as I did 
is that this whole process has been vexed with inadequate noticing. I'm sorry that you feel that you've done a good job, but it turns out that most of the people in town didn't know about most of it, and myself is included, I received no noticing, and I'm right above City Hall. Most of the people in this town got no noticing of the housing element meetings, most of the people. That's not acceptable. There's only one way to remedy that, and that's the traditional noticing method. Thank you. Next speaker is Daniel Chador. Hi, Daniel Shador, Gables in Sausalito and Hotel Sausalito. Um, the property owners in the historic district have spent decades and tens of millions of dollars working with the city to preserve the downtown historic district. Um, at this time, I'm aware, my, my big issue question is, is I'm not understanding how the Historic Preservation Committee is interacting with this EIR and protecting the historic district as its mandate. And as I read the EIR, it states the draft EAR you are reviewing has stated significant impact unavoidable to the historic district in section 3.44-1. And I know, I know the, the EIR has alternatives. It's what alternatives exist. I also reached out to the California Office of Historic Preservation, and I'm wondering if they've commented on the EIR or the draft and made comment. Obviously, what, what I'm concerned with is that you've put parcels in, in the historic district into the overlay, the opportunity zone, and what that does is circumvent our historic preservation committee as well as design review and potentially puts them into a ministerial process. I'm not opposed to development, but in the historic district, it requires an oversight of architecture and harmony with the historic district. And that's why I'm concerned is that the ministerial process will be used and we won't be able to control what takes place in the historic district. Thank you. Next uh, speaker is uh, Linda Fitch. I'm Linda Fitch. I'm a resident of Sausalito and I'm the owner of um, Hop, uh, Housing Opportunity Site number 201. Um, the questions that I have are first one on <clears throat> page ES15, and this is about the sites that are pro proposed for rezoning um, subject to vote of the electorate. And it refers to ordinance number 1022. And I didn't see online the, any, um, <clears throat> anything that changed um, the ordinance 1022 from what I'm reading now, which says it does not apply to CC or any residential zoning districts. Um, if that's true, then <clears throat> the um, designated sites there need to be relooked at. They're not correct. Um, my other comment is on page ES23. And that's about the date of availability of the EIR. Um, you're saying it's January 5th. I believe they, in the document, say it's May or something. Um, and I also didn't see it on January 5th, but um, like I bet McDougall said. Um, but those are my comments. 
next speaker, Jeffrey Chase. Hello, Mayor. Hello, City Council and citizens of Sausalito. Anybody watching on Zoom? Uh, Happy New Year, and it's good to see you all here. I feel that to set the stage for the idea that everybody needs a place to live, and when that's obstructed, then it leads to million-dollar settlements and more uh, going to people that we still are dealing with to make sure that everybody that we're dealing with as uh, Camp Cormorant 1, 2, and 3 uh, started in December of 2020, that the people that we continue to follow up. Uh, in Leviticus 25.10, it says, declare freedom throughout the nation and to all its citizens therein. It's on the Liberty Bell. Cracked, of course. And it goes on to speak of the fruit trees that are given in equal portions to all the people. Equal value. It doesn't mean equal land. You know, if there's no water and there's a million acres, it's not as valuable as 10,000 with a flowing waterfall. And even in Ezekiel 47, it says the land is divided by tribes, by families. It's not individual because people have to watch each other for this. And even the strangers who live amongst us. That's the Palestinians too, have equal land and that solves an issue that's going on. So Thank you. I don't understand all the housing element. Very confusing to somebody like me, uh, a layman. So thanks. Okay, Alice Merrill. Hello, everybody. Um, I think it's confusing too. And I'm guessing that this has, if you were in the housing element you would understand what this is but my comment is that I come to these meetings to find out what's going on and I find out that you have this is complicated and it's deep and people who know what they're talking about will want to have something to say and it started on on the 5th of January and here it is the 16th and this is kind of the beginning of when anybody might have heard of it unless it's been very well noticed in places that I haven't noticed. Um, so I think that if you're going to have a, a noticing period when people can comment, that it, it should be the whole period instead of just part of it. And, you know, that's kind of my thing all the time is that fairness thing. Thanks. Okay, next uh, next person, Sandra Bushmaker, if you can... Good evening, everybody. Good to see you all again. Uh, something piqued my interest during the presentation by the uh, by the consultants, and that had to do with uh, Program 16. And listed in Program 16 were height limits. So my question is, are we anticipating changing the height, 32-foot height limit in Sausalito? And does this program address this? Does the EIR address this potential? 
or is it not a potential at all? And, and I also noticed in the list of considerations, views was not listed. And so with regard to, to height limitations and view corridors, I think that um, uh, if we can't address the impact of height on view corridors, then I think we're missing something, but it may not be permissible under the EIR law. I'm not, I just don't know the answer to that question. But number one, are we anticipating a change in the height limit in Sausalito? And number two, if we can't consider views, what recommendation does the consultant have for how we address uh, height limits in Sausalito? Thank you. See no further speakers. No further public comment, then we will close public comment and bring it back up to the dais for discussion. Council uh, Vice Mayor Cox. I would like to ask a couple of questions as a follow on to the public comment. <clears throat> um, do we have Beth or? Ms. Thompson and, could you please unmute yourself, Ms. Thompson? And Ms. Irwin? Oh, there we go. Okay, thank you. Um, so thank you, Beth. I guess it's on slide five of your presentation that you do address program 16. And when I saw the references to design standards, including height limits, I assumed that was in deference to the density bonus law, which we've already adopted and did not entail any plan by the city council or city management to change the zoning ordinance 32 foot height restriction. Is that accurate? So let me go to the project description of the EIR because we do discuss this in a little more detail in the project description. So we do anticipate that not necessarily changing the height limits for the existing zoning districts, but where we have the overlay zones allowing greater heights, and this would also be encapsulated in the odds. Um, so if you look at table 2-4, it identifies the proposed heights and setbacks for the new overlay zones, and those would be above 32 feet, would be um, a max of 45 feet or four stories. So I, you know, I attended every single housing element committee meeting and helped finalize the housing element, and I don't recall including in a program an increase in any zone, including the overlay zones, beyond the 32-foot height limit. We did discuss uh, that the overlay zones would necessarily be subject to density bonus law, which could result in a net increase beyond the 32-foot height limit if the proper um, if they met the requirements to gain those density bonus concessions. But I don't recall ever um, authorizing a program that would result in a height limit above 32 feet, even for overlay zones. And so this, this doesn't sound like a comment on the EIR itself, but rather a comment on the, the project. And there is a need and there's a discussion of reviewing these densities, the, the standards to ensure that you can accommodate the maximum density. So as part of the odds process, the odds team reviewed 
what the setbacks and heights would need to be to accommodate the densities established by the housing element. And there was some discussion of that during the housing element update that once those zones were applied, there would need to be specific standards developed for those to accommodate those, those densities. But we have not yet updated the zoning ordinance. And so we have not yet up, um, I, uh, identified and adopted those standards that you referenced. Correct, that is part of the proposed project. Okay, and so we haven't actually yet adopted any revised standards, even within the overlay zones for our zoning ordinance. Correct, those would be considered by the Planning Commission and Council after the EIR process is complete. And the housing element as written includes a buffer for the required number of units. And so it's possible that if some of our other zones pan out in terms of, you know, adopting revisions to SB 1022 or 1128, then we may not need to exercise the maximum density within each of the overlay zones. Would that be a true statement? So program four commits the city to rezoning specific acres at specific densities. If you wished to alter program four, you would probably want to go back to the state and discuss the revised approach. But yes, there's definitely the potential if the city identifies other methods to accommodate your regional housing need allocation, you would have an opportunity to go and make really specific adjustments to your housing element just to focus that discussion at the state level. But that's the, the project is looking at accommodating the arena through application of the four overlay zones. So, um, Beth, it seems somewhat inconsistent that on one hand, to the base mayor's question, on one hand, uh, program four says, let's throw everything in the kitchen sink to see if we can meet this. But elsewhere uh, in the housing element, it says, we may not need to utilize all of these tool sets to meet this. And I think what we're expressing is, at least I, I'm speaking for myself, perhaps a caution around creating ambiguity as to what we intended. And those seem to be inconsistent to me. So program four is clear in the densities and acres that would be applied to each density in the rezoning effort. Um, yeah, that's so. And, and are you saying that by default, that density in some instances can only be met by a lifting of the height restriction? Correct. Yes. When the odds project was looking at these these densities, this was the recommended height limit, and they looked at some higher heights. Then they they tested a number of scenarios and came up with the forty five feet as being adequate to accommodate. The densities and in some cases there would have to be modest sized units to be built within those sites. I think that was our intention in identity. So we used rotary housing as our benchmark for identifying what the highest density could possibly be on a site and rotary housing is uh, housing that has a density of 70 units per acre but is not above 32 feet and so when we were identifying potential sites elsewhere in town, we were using that as a metric, but we were very cognizant of the square footage um, so as to not um, violate, to not violate Sausalito's existing 
32-foot ordinance. So I'm not sure where the disconnect was between w the work that the working group did to identify opportunity sites and densities for them and the work that the consultants did to identify the required height to meet those um, densities. And I would, I think it would be good to, since we are focused on getting comments on the EIR, I think when you have your workshop to discuss the odds, this would probably be a great topic for discussion at that time, since those odds are really what are helping um, address and, and determine how the shape and form of buildings that will be built under these overlay zones. Okay, and along a similar vein, my last question has to do with U corridors. So is there, are we, are we, in your view, contemplating dispensing with the protection of U corridors um, within overlay zones or anywhere in Sausalito? Other than the revisions to the objective design standards, which will uh, necessarily um, implement a standardized approach to evaluating view corridors. And I will, I think Christina is ready to answer this question since the aesthetic section does discuss view corridors. And do you need to be unmuted here? Let me see. Hey, thank you. Technology. Um, to address your question, we do indeed address view corridors and scenic resources in uh, Section 3.1 Aesthetics, um, as well as identified um, the view corridors um, that were identified in the Marin Chip Plan, and that is on Figure 3.1-2. So in that regard, we demonstrate where those view corridors are in that plan, how it relates to public space, um, and we have an analysis uh, about views um, in the city. Thank you. Uh, that I did see that. That does address my question. Those are all of my questions, and my thanks to the public for their comments that prompted additional questions. Please. Yeah. So I'm um, going to follow up on the vice mayor again. Um, so maybe just for the sake of everybody in, in the room, I, I know you guys know how, how it works, but the objective design standards have not yet been approved. You're saying, what I'm hearing you say is that they could potentially mitigate some of the impacts that we are seeing, but because it's not approved yet, how do you, how do you think about them within the context of the EIR in terms of mitigating the impacts? Is it ignored completely because they're not approved or is it anticipated down the line. For the purposes of the EIR, we analyze the development that could occur kind of within that general footprint envisioned by the proposed odds. So we don't necessarily look at them to mitigate impacts as much as what what form would development take under the odds and how, how what would be the environmental implications of that development. But the odds are not established yet. Correct. So they're part of the project. So that they're being reviewed as part of the housing element programs project. Okay. So you're saying if the odds as currently contained within the housing element project were to be approved, this is the XYZ result. Okay. Correct. All right. So then um, let me switch gears and just address the question from a member of the public around um, if you could just articulate 
how the, oh, sorry, how the, I reverted to my East Coast roots, um, how the uh, historic district uh, operates and the impact of the overlay zone and how we might consider our historic resources within the context of overlay zones. So I'm, I'm just paraphrasing one of the questions from the public about the fact that, oh, are you on mute, Beth? Okay, Beth is on mute. Um, can I be unmuted? Can we just leave them both unmuted and allow them? Sir, go ahead. Hi, yeah, I can I can answer that question. Um, and, and the answer is actually far more positive than I think it's possible to perceive. Uh, I believe Christina used the phrase abundance of caution. To be perfectly honest, there is extensive historic resource mitigation in the EIR. We do not in any way expect a significant impact to historic resources as a result of the implementation of the housing element programs. The only reason that the EIR concludes a significant and unavoidable uh, impact to historic resources is because we cannot guarantee, guarantee uh, 100% that no one will ever seek to demolish a historic structure in any area where I'm not saying where we know there's a historic structure. I mean, in some area where there's a housing opportunity site and we later find out that a proposed project would result in the demolition of a property that we now know is historic. So basically it, it, it speaks to what we cannot anticipate, what we cannot know. If in the future, a building we didn't know was historic is pro proposed for demolition to build housing, the demolition of such a historic structure is a per se, as a matter of law, significant impact. We do not expect it. It is not proposed by the project. We just cannot know at the 80,000 foot level whether it might in the future possibly happen. Um, so Sarah, th thank you for that. Can I request uh, a very stripped down layperson's version of that um, articulation. I think sort of the question here in the room is, we have a historic district, the housing element provides for an overlay zone. That means some aspects of these historic resources will be potentially compromised. What is the process within the city we have a historic preservation committee, we have a planning commission. How does that get reviewed? How does the public get to weigh in? Or is it some sort of default, it will happen because there's an overlay zone? So there are three pieces, I think. The simplest answer is that there are the mitigation measures that are already in the EIR, that is the draft EIR before you now. So that's one piece. The second piece is the city's code, and I defer to Brandon and Sergio, the city's code as it applies to already designated historic structures and anything that might impact them. And then the third is subsequent discretionary review of a project under the California Environmental Quality Act, just like this one, must look at potential impacts to cultural resources and must impose all feasible mitigation measures. Okay, thank you. 
Are there any, any other discussion or questions on this topic? The recommended action is to receive the presentation and accept public comment. So. I would like to make a couple of comments. Uh, Vice Mayor Cox. Um, I, I did want to respond to the issue of lack of notice. So I was not on the city council when the housing element committee was formed and when it conducted its meetings, but I attended every one of those public meetings and there were dozens of them in which every single component of the housing element was thoroughly vetted, considered, debated, and voted upon. And so um, I, I, it was also published <laughs> in the currents and then there were various public meetings held by the city council to consider various, uh, the progress of the housing element to hold well, the consultant to task for getting it done more quickly. Um, there were, and so there was lots of feedback um, by, in public and at which um, members of the public had an opportunity to participate. Now, much of this happened during the Zoom era. And so people were not sitting in chambers like we are today. We're fortunate to have this available to us again, but I did want to point out the very transparent process that was undertaken both in appointing a housing element committee, in uh, the meetings held by, the, the public meetings held by the housing element committee and the meetings held by the city council. So we do still have more opportunity to consider how best to implement the housing element, and that will happen as we update our zoning ordinance and as we op, uh, uh, adopt the objective standards. So there is still more opportunity for the public to weigh in, but the, the process thus far has been as transparent as I've seen in many of the municipalities for which I work. So I just wanted to make that clear in response to some of the public comments. Um, and we take this responsibility very seriously. We worked very hard to ensure we had a motto of not uh, of uh, no one area would be um, overly impacted over another area. So we did our very best to spread out the impact of identifying 724 new units of housing throughout Sausalito and not um, overly impacting any single area. So those the 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 imp and we also went out and interviewed many members of the public regarding did they want to build? Did they want, you know, where could we put these units? So I just, um, it is our commitment to address any concerns. And a couple of you have written to me and I will absolutely meet with you offline on an individual basis. But I just wanted to make that clear for all members of the public. And right. uh, I know the mayor already thanked you, but I type 130 words a minute some of tonight's comments, I'm told, were at least 220 words per minute. So bravo to our court reporter for her Herculean effort in keeping up with us. Thank you, Vice Mayor. Do, uh, any, are any other comments from the dais? My comment, uh, Mayor, is just really to staff. I think we need to see the odds that has to come to council within this process. I mean, I, I don't know when it is on the agenda, but... It's very difficult to fully appreciate the potential impacts 
and the different levers that can get pushed and pulled without also seeing those in front of us. So I would love uh, an update from Director Phipps or the city manager as to the timing of that. Could we ask just right now, Director Phipps, I know we are working on trying to agendize out for the entire year many things that we anticipate coming down the pike since there are key deadlines to meet for ballot initiative, ballot measures and otherwise. Do we have some guidance to Councilmember Kalman on this subject? So council member, thank you very much for the question. Much appreciated. I can tell you that we are working hard on bringing a draft version of the odds before the planning commission sometime in February based on planning commission's action in connection with the draft odds. We may or may not be able to bring the item before council um, prior to the closure of the comment period. I would Estimate, however, that it's more likely that council will hear the item sometime in March based on the annual calendar. Thank you, Director Phipps. So while we have you up there and we have the consultants, are there any other ongoing city decisions in draft form that should be considered in parallel with this EIR? My short answer is no. Okay. I shall take that. Thank you. Any other comments from the dais before we move on? I just want to thank staff for the amount of time that's been put into both the housing element and the EAR and the members of the housing element subcommittee uh, that sit on our council, which would be Vice Mayor Cox and Councilmember Kelman, who have put in several, probably hundred additional hours to help us get through this process. And I would just direct staff uh, as well to be a um, as proactively seeking comment as we may. So that means including it maybe in every currents until the comment period ends, um, making sure that it's adequately posted around City Hall um, and to the extent that we can really trying to seek additional public comment or as, um, so or just make sure that folks are informed since I do appreciate that we have made a lot of effort to do so so far and I appreciate the Vice Mayor's comments, but I wanna as well respond to the community concerns and do what we can in response. Seeing no other comments or discussion, we will move on to item 5B, the auditor presentation and receipt on filing of the fiscal year 22-23 basic financial statements and report on internal control over financial reporting. Director Hess, could you unmute yourself, please? Stand by while we figure that out. Okay. Yeah, All right. Now I'm unmuted. Awesome. All right, good evening, Mayor, Council, members of the public. Uh, tonight we have our external auditor with us uh, remotely via Zoom um, from Badawi's and Associates. We are going to share the results of our audit. Our fiscal year ended June 30th, 2023 audit. Um, as required by state law, our books are audited annually by an external independent auditor who comes in and assesses our account balances um, also looks at our internal controls and gives a statement as to whether they are designed effectively or not. Um, with that, I would like to introduce you to Ahmed Badawi with Badawi & Associates, the audit partner on this engagement. Uh, he's got a presentation to share with you, and after that presentation, we will be available for comments or questions. You guys go ahead and unmute Ahmed. There we go. Thank you. Good evening. Good evening. 
my name is Ahmed Badawi. Thank you for the introduction, Chad. And today I will be presenting to you the results of the fiscal year 2023 audit. Uh, if you allow me to share my screen, I think I have permission. I will go ahead and do that and get started. All right, you should be able to see my screen right now. Uh, so I'm gonna go ahead and get started. So again, thank you for inviting me to the meeting today. Uh, I will present to you the result of our audit of the city of Sausalito. Uh, what I'm gonna cover today, I'm gonna let you know who the engagement team was, uh, what were the deliverables in the scope of our audit, uh, areas of primary audit emphasis, the type of audit opinion we issued and summarize for you the numbers in the financial statements, uh, provide you some of the required communications as your independent auditor, and then finally see if you have any questions uh, or comments for me. So starting with the engagement team, uh, this was the composition of our engagement team. I acted as the engagement partner. Uh, we always have a quality control reviewer, and this person is in the background. Their role is to review the audit teamwork, make sure that we adhere to professional standards. They also provide a secondary review of the financial statements. We also have an IT specialist, and this is an, uh, strictly an information technology professional who focus on the security embedded in the city's uh, uh, IT system and infrastructure. We also had an audit manager and three professional staff assigned to the audit. As for the deliverables, we were mainly engaged to provide an opinion on the city's basic financial statements. Uh, also, the city is subject to what we call government auditing standards, which require us to issue a report on internal control over financial reporting and on compliance with laws and regulations. Uh, we performed agreed upon procedures on the appropriation limit schedule, that's the GAN limit. And then finally, uh, the communication was the governing body, which is what I'm doing today. And normally we issue a letter also summarizing that communication. As for areas of primary audit emphasis. Uh, some, of, uh, some of the areas are pretty standard in most of our audits. So for example, the first one, the risk of management override of controls. Uh, this is a risk that exists in almost every audit. Management is usually the one responsible for designing and implementing and monitoring internal controls. And they are oftentimes in a position to override those. So we design audit procedures to minimize this risk to an acceptable level. So we make sure that we assign more experienced staff to more complex areas of the audit, that we incorporate an element of unpredictability so we don't let management know ahead of time about all the procedures we're going to be looking at. Um, uh, we look at the accounting principles and how they're applied and their consistency. We examine journal entries prepared by management, make sure that they're properly supported. We review any estimates uh, made by management to make sure that they're free of bias. Uh, evaluate business rationale for any unusual transactions, and also do fraud and related party inquiries. Another area of focus for us is revenue. Uh, revenue by default is an area of a higher risk as well. Um, uh, we rely heavily on confirmations. So we send confirmations to the county, to the state, to uh, other franchisees and so on, and asking them to confirm amounts submitted to the city. We reconcile those to the city's accounting records and make sure that we are able to tie them back. Uh, proprietary funds, we do a lot of uh, trend analysis and ratio analysis on the revenues of the proprietary funds. Another area of risk that we considered during our, our audit was a turnover risk. 
the city have experienced turnover in staffing in the finance area. So we just had to consider that. And again, part of it was just making sure that we're looking at all the journal entries as much as we can, uh, scanning the general ledger for any unusual transactions, doing a lot of analysis of prior, prior year comparison, budget to actual comparison, ratio analysis, and, uh, and so on. So those were the main risks that we dealt with during our audit. As for our auditor's report, we have issued an unmodified opinion. Uh, the opinion state the standards that we followed, which are the generally accepted auditing standards and government auditing standards. An unmodified opinion means that we believe financial statements are fairly presented, that all accounting policies have been consistently applied, that all estimates are reasonable, and that all disclosures are properly reflected in the financial statements. I wanted to summarize for you some of the numbers in the financial statements. Um, on this slide here is just a snapshot, a summary of the city's assets over the last three years. Uh, please keep in mind, this is really a, a 30,000 foot view. So we're not focused on any specific fund. This is all city funds combined, uh, just looking at it uh, as a snapshot. Uh, I don't see any major fluctuation uh, over the last three years. Like most of our cities, the two largest assets are usually the cash and investments and the capital assets. Uh, this is fairly consistent with every municipality, every city we audit. Um, I would say that fluctuations were not significant year over year. On the next slide there is a summary of the liabilities over the last three years. And uh, I would say the most significant would be the increase in net pension liability. This is uh, a result of uh, CalPERS performance on investments and also changes in assumptions, most notably the discount rate that has caused uh, the net pension liability to increase. Otherwise, uh, again, numbers are fairly consistent year over year. On this slide here is a summary of the city's equity over the last three years. Uh, equity is just assets minus liabilities. And we divide the equity into three categories. The first one, the net investment in capital assets. This is the amount that is not really in a spendable form and unlikely to become spendable anytime in the future. This is how much the city invested in streets and roads and bridges and buildings and, and so on. Uh, the restricted amounts are the amount that have legal restriction by a third party. So this would be any unspent grant proceeds, uh, TDA funds, uh, gas tax, those types of revenues. And then the unrestricted amount is the amount under the council control. And this is currently a deficit $10 million. Uh, obviously, the, the, the most uh, uh, significant factor in this deficit will be the pension liability and the OPEP liability. Uh, if we were to just look at revenue over expenses year over year, again, this is just really taking all the city revenues and expenses, not one specific fund. Uh, I would say that the most, you can obviously can see that the, the short is increasing uh, quite a bit during the year. And mostly this is the result of uh, uh, changes in pension, uh, pension expense, CalPERS activity, uh, and so on that is causing those fluctuations. Another thing that we look at is what we call the net cost of service to tax revenue. 
So the net cost of service is the is the cost of the city running its own departments uh, without basically using tax revenues. So you will look at a department like public works or community development, and uh, you will see how much does it cost to run them and whether those departments are able to bring in any revenues on their own in the form of grants or fees or so on. And the net will be what's going to be covered by tax revenues. Uh, so uh, you can see that uh, tax revenues in the past have not been uh, sufficient for the net cost of service. Uh, in 2023, it is uh, uh, exceeding the net cost of service. Uh, this is the amount that is reported on the financial statements. I do uh, caution that sometimes those amounts fluctuate quite a bit. For example, one year you may have something like ARPA funds that may offset the net cost of service and reduce it. Another year you don't have it and you see it increasing and so on. But I was, what I would say from this uh, slide is that what is consistent is that the tax revenues are increasing year over year. And that's obviously a good sign. Um, if we were to just focus on the general fund, obviously the general fund is where most of the city's unrestricted resources reside. So this is a measurement of the city's liquidity. Uh, what we do here is we look at the unrestricted fund balance and we compare it to annual expenditures. The idea is to see how long can the city continue to pay its bills just using existing fund balance. And we have determined that the city probably have about six months worth of expenditures in its fund balance. And that is a decent amount of fund balance. Uh, the minimum recommended ratio is about no less than two months. Anytime you go less than two months, it's obviously there are some red flags there. Uh, so the city is at six months. That's That's a comfortable place to be. Uh, the next few slides are going to focus on pension and OPEB. So on this slide here, you see that your pension liability over the last three years, and you can see the fluctuation from 32 million back in 2020 or 2021 to 20 million to back to 35 million. A lot of it has to do with uh, CalPERS uh, in the prior year had a very good year. Uh, this year, the uh, not as not as good. Uh, also, the change in assumption are making these numbers fluctuate significantly. Uh, wanted to bring to your attention that the pension liability is an estimate. And one of the most significant assumptions in coming up with this estimate is the discount rate. So we wanted to, to show you what the numbers would be if the discount rate is either increased or decreased by 1%. Currently, the discount rate used is 6.9%. That's the number, that's a discount rate used to determine the city's pension liability. So you can see how significant the number will change with one increase, 1% uh, increase or decrease. Uh, similar to pension, the city also offer OPEB uh, benefits, the retiree medical benefits. So on this slide here, it's, uh, it's a summary of the city's uh, assets invested in the plan, uh, which are on the first column on the left the city's liability, the total liability of the plan, and then finally the unfunded portion on the right uh, over the last three years. Uh, currently, the city have about 5.3 million unfunded. Again, this number is an estimated number, similar to pension. Discount rate is also a significant assumption. So wanted to show you what the numbers would look like with a 1% increase or decrease. Uh, 
in addition to the discount rate, the healthcare trend rate is also a significant assumption in determining the, uh, this number. So I wanted to show you also within 1% increase and decrease. Uh, the last part of my presentation is the required communications as your independent auditor. Uh, on this slide here is a summary of the responsibilities between the audit firm and city management. Uh, our responsibility is mainly to provide an opinion on the financial statements, wh whether they are fairly stated in accordance with US CAP or not. Part of doing that is to also evaluate internal control over financial reporting, including the tone at the top. And we mean by that, whether management is sending the right message to the rest of the organization about the importance of internal controls, the consequences of committing fraud, also about uh, evaluating whether management take corrective action to address audit finding and issues and whether the governing body cares about management addressing those uh, audit findings or not. Uh, we're responsible for evaluating compliance with laws and regulations that could have an effect on the financial statements. We're responsible for ensuring that the city's financial statements are clear and transparent. And then finally, we are responsible for communicating with the governing body. Management have a lot of responsibilities in this process. Our audit does not relieve management from its responsibility uh, towards the financial statements. Management is still the one responsible for the completeness and accuracy of those financials. Uh, also responsible for establishing and maintaining internal control over financial reporting, making all financial records available to us, establish controls that will prevent and detect fraud, inform us of any known and suspected fraud, comply with laws and regulations and take corrective action on any audit findings. As far as independence, uh, it is solely our responsibility to maintain our independence. Uh, we adhere to the AICPA standards and the California Board of Accountancy rules. Uh, we evaluate any relationships that we may have, any firm member may have with the city staff or city personnel in general. Uh, we also evaluate any additional service that we offer the city that may impair our independence. Uh, financial statements is a service, compiling the financial statements is a service that does impair independence if no safeguards are put in place. And we do put safeguards by having an independent reviewer reviewing those financial statements. Uh, as far as timing, we believe that the audit was performed timely uh, in accordance with the engagement letter uh, that we agreed to as a city. Uh, wanted to highlight to you that every year there are some new accounting standards that the city will consider whether they apply to it or not. Uh, in fiscal year 2023, there were three new uh, standards that the city have taken into consideration. Uh, wanted to, I, I mentioned earlier that some of the numbers in the financials are estimated numbers, so just wanted to highlight to you some examples of those numbers. Claims liability, useful life of capital assets, uh, pension, OPEB liabilities, all of these are estimated numbers. Also wanted to bring to your attention some of the more sensitive disclosure in the financials. So I highlighted some of the notes that I that I think add some more uh, clarity and uh, to some rather complex numbers. Uh, I'm pleased to say that we encountered no difficulties during the audit. Uh, we had some adjusting entries and management has posted all of those adjusting entries with the exception of a couple that were considered to be immaterial. Uh, 
uh, there were no significant risk or exposure. We normally communicate with legal counsel. We ask them to confirm any outstanding litigations, and we make sure that disclosures are in the financial statements, especially if those litigations are not the standard ones covered by insurance. We're pleased to say that we had no disagreement with management. We did identify a material weakness related to restatement of opening balances. So what this means is that the city, after issuing the financial statements in 2022, discovered that there were several errors that needed to be corrected in those financials. So the way to correct them is by restating the opening balance in the 2023 financials. So the city had a few of those restatements. And that normally reflects that uh, the internal controls did not work timely to detect those errors prior to the issuance of the financial statements. Uh, right before we issued the financials, we obtained representations from management, basically a letter from management acknowledging that they have taken responsibility for the financials, that they have recorded all transactions, they have disclosed to us unknown facts, and, and so on. We're also not aware that management have consulted with any other CPA or accounting firms regarding audit matters. Uh, other than our engagement letter and the representation letter, we had no other communication with management. Uh, there were no material uncertainties relating to events and conditions, and we have not become aware of any instance of fraud or illegal acts. Uh, just finally, on my last slide here is a summary of the new accounting standards that are coming city's way. Every year with management, we will be discussing those standards and how they may or may not impact the city. Uh, I think other than that, um, I'm obviously available for questions, and I want to say thank you very much for allowing us the opportunity. Thank you, Mr. Badawi. Are there any questions from the dais? Thank you for the substantial audit, which I know required a lot of time and hard work. And thank you to the city of Sausalito staff for your cooperation in the audit and in helping us to demonstrate where we are financially. We had a number of questions and this might be a question for Director Hess, uh, but it might be a question for you, sir. Um, uh, there, there's been a lot of consideration around the current status of our um, fiscal picture and based on your audit, it seems that we are in a strong financial position, in fact, much stronger than we were, say, 2018, 2019, and 2020. Could you just reiterate the amount of money that we have that is not yet classified for going into the 2023 budget? I understand the number is somewhere around $10 million, and I just want to confirm that based on the audit. Uh, I, I think this will probably be a question for Shed. I don't know what's going into the... The budget. Yep. So, so I think the question at, at hand is the general funds unassigned fund balance. Um, if I can share my screen real quick, I think I can show you what what they're. That's exactly what to. the question at hand is. Thank you, Director Hess. Yes. So the the general fund currently has an unrestricted fund balance of ten million dollars eight ten million eight. I'm sorry, ten million eight hundred eighty two thousand two hundred sixty six dollars. Um, that is very similar to what we had last year, a slight increase of that unassigned fund balance. Um, let me see my screen can now be shared. Let me go ahead and share that. So I think what you're what you're referring to is right here as far as that unassigned fund balance. And as noted in his presentation, that represents just over 50% 
of our general funds expenditures. Um, I think your question is is for him to elaborate on our on the standing. Is that an adequate amount of fund balance? Is that what you're looking for, Council Member? Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, um, I look at it the same way I look at my personal finances. Uh, six months is, is is probably okay. It could always be more. Um, we we have cities that are in the six to eight months or four to eight months, and I would say that's the majority of our cities. But we definitely have some that have a year, year and a half, and two years worth of fund balance. Uh, I don't know if that's, you know, ideal, but uh, there are really a, a lot of variation. But I would say that you probably fall within the average, within within what most of our clients would have. Thank you. Vice Mayor. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to clarify one of the things on your presentation, which was the you had identified a material weakness related to the restatement of opening balances. And I just wanted to clarify that when you go back into your report, it reports that um, there were errors actually um, in, the, in the issuance of the 2021 to 22 financial statements. So that was long before our current uh, finance director was hired um, and that um, there were some of the fund balances were closed um, late um, or essentially you said the city had inadequate controls over the closing process and therefore um, they had to restate some of the opening balances the following fiscal year. Is that an ad is accurate overview of your comment on that issue? There is, there is an accurate overview. I, uh, my comment is obviously not intended uh, for the current director of uh, uh, finance. We look at it uh, from a city perspective. Uh, the city's 2022 financial statements were issued with those errors in them. And the comment is saying that the city's internal controls did not work timely enough to detect those errors prior to those financials being issued. I, I probably want to say that probably Director Shedd is, is the one who discovered a lot of those errors as we went through the audit. Uh, nonetheless, they were discovered after those 2022 financials were issued, and that's what the comment is focused on. But the, so while things were late or not completely accurate, there wasn't any, uh, there weren't any misdeeds by city employees. It was simply um, accuracy of reporting. Would that be a fair statement? Uh, the way we see internal controls, that they're not just focused on safeguarding of assets, but also we focus a lot on internal control over financial reporting, over how the numbers are reported, over whether errors are being detected in a timely manner. Uh, uh, so, yeah, the, 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 the concern is not about safekeeping or safeguarding of assets, but it is about controls over financial reporting, producing the financial statements, making sure you have adequate accounting records. 
and management gave you several actions that they've taken to improve the situation, including more technical training for the accounting department, more detailed account review and reconciliation process sooner, and building a more complete month-end and year-end and close schedule to ensure an accurate and timely close process. And is that what you observed in your review of the most current financial statements? Um, so uh, again, the, the, the management plan was provided to us after we concluded our audit for 2023. So this would be something that we will actually be visiting in 2024 and, and see if the plan was put in place and whether it worked or not. Uh, in, in, in our opinion, uh, we actually say that we have not audited the management response, uh, but obviously something that is normally followed up on the, uh, in the following year to see if it worked or not. And I'll just wrap up with, certainly we closed our books and completed our audit before the end of 2023, which I think is the first I, time I've seen that happen in at least a decade. And so wouldn't you agree that's an upstat in terms of uh, timely, um, a, a timely year-end close schedule to ensure an accurate and timely close process? No doubt. I mean, uh, not only that this is the first time, but the first time also while changing audit firm uh, that usually add to the burden on city staff because the audit firm is new, is asking more questions and gathering more documentation. So city staff were able to not only work with a new audit firm, but also meet deadlines and uh, obviously the credit goes to the city staff for this, for, for being prepared and responsive and able to produce quality documents that are acceptable to the audit firm. Well, thank you, sir. We appreciate your report and we uh, certainly appreciate the outcome of your report. You're welcome. Are there other questions from the dais? Uh, I have one follow-up question, which is, um a little bit looking backwards, but it's on the topic of internal control. So what, if any, control is in place when we budget for an item and the monies do not get spent? What control is in place to prevent the movement of that unspent budgeted amount into another fund or department how does one sort of track that and because what happens for us up here is we'll be asked to approve something and then a year from now we'll be reminded we approved that uh, budget but perhaps it was never spent uh, and I'm just wondering what from you as an auditor what your perspective is on the right control to make sure that those monies stay where they were originally allocated well, obviously, I, I think that having um, a strong policy about um, what happens when the budget year is over and the money is unspent, whether it's just it becomes subject to reappropriation or stays where it, where it is, um, you know, we we see that we hear that concern oftentimes where you have a lot of staff uh, salaries that are scheduled, but these positions are vacant and. The money doesn't get spent. Um, uh, 
uh, again, it all depends on the policy, but obviously at some point, uh, this money is reflected in fund balance and um, will 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 have to be reviewed at some point. Whether this is it, not something that our audit focus more on the actual numbers, what that what did occur, versus what will happen based on a budget. But we do compare the the actual results every year to what was budgeted. Uh, we do inquire about uh, items that exceeded the budget. There is disclosure in the financial statements about funds and line items that exceeded their budget. We are we sometimes also inquire the other way around when there were large budget amounts and no expenditures or significantly lower expenditure. Um, but oftentimes we would not necessarily uh, like it would not be a finding for us that something was budgeted high and then the spending didn't occur because there can be a variety of reasons why the spending didn't occur whether couldn't find a qualified contractor timely or just there's always there are many reasons for that Uh, thanks very much, um, Mr. Badawi or or um, Chad. Either one of you um, of the of the ten million, um, the general fund unassigned balance. About what of that? I think this is probably for Chad. About what of that uh, number is attributable to the Measure O slash Measure L sales tax that we or is any of it? Yes, I can sh I can share that response. So, so even though that's a, a tax, I'll just recap for Bula, that that's a tax that was implemented mainly for to fund capital improvements um, because of the structure of the vote. It was it goes into the general fund, but we as a policy at the city council level um, attribute or we uh, allocate that to capital improvements. So I just want to make sure that even though it's lumped in with unassigned, it's it's still, uh, I guess, informally earmarked for capital improvements. Are you guys able to see my screen now? Yeah. Okay. Um, of the of the ten million, eight hundred eighty-two. You're seeing your menu, not your PDF. Oh. You think yeah. Okay, you're not seeing the PDF. I am sorry. Let me reshare. Sorry for technical difficulties here. I'm going to share screen one. Hold on. I think Walford maybe. Chad, let me let me try it. Are you guys able to see it here? Do you want to drive or you want me to drive? I'll drive if I can. Are you guys able to see my screen? With the PDF on it or not? No, that that's the list of your PDFs. That's okay. The, you're seeing this screen then. Do you see the financials now? Yes. Uh -huh. Yes. Okay. So, of this ten million eight hundred eighty-two thousand, Measure L, which is our our penny sales tax, represents six hundred ninety-one thousand of that ten million eight hundred ninety-two. So this year we did present the three funds that make up the general fund that we report on the front schedules, the general fund proper, which is our operating account. So that funds police, Department of Public Works, library, et cetera. Um, we have our measure L sales tax, the penny sales tax that we are collecting to repair our roads and infrastructure with. And then our pension trust fund is included in that general fund. And that has a restricted fund balance of three million Five hundred and seventy-six thousand. Um, thank you. And then, as a follow-up, also, as part of that, um, 
Is there also a portion that's attributable to unfilled uh, but allocated, uh, allocated meaning we budgeted for it, uh, employee positions that we haven't yet filled? That that would that would be in that would close into fund balance. So any unspent dollars. So we budgeted a million dollars for salaries, but we only spent eight hundred thousand. At the end of the year, that unspent proceeds would just close or roll into our unassigned fund balance to be appropriated in in subsequent years. Okay. So any any savings, any salary savings that we leads to a surplus right. goes into fund balance. Okay, thanks. So, yep. and so that's what that's also included in the number that we've been given as the as the um, unassigned balance. That's yeah. Any any previous year's savings. Yep. Any previous year's surpluses are all captured in that fund balance number um, that we can see here on on page one twenty nine of the of the printed book or one thirty five of the PDF. Okay. Okay. If we look at current year general fund, when we go to the next page here, here's our revenues and expenses. Here you can see in the current fiscal year, um, we had a net change in fund balance of the general fund of $1.6 million, meaning we had more inflows, more resources come into the general fund than we had go out. Um, in the operating portion of that account, we had, eight, we had a deficit spend of 86000 but because of that million dollar transfer that we made from the general fund proper to our pension trust fund, that's the leading cause of that deficit. You can see that movement here, a transfer out of general fund proper over to our pension trust fund. That does get eliminated, but you can see overall we had an increase of 1688000 in the general fund, a positive increase, more revenues than expenses for this fiscal year. I just had two questions. Uh, what is the uh, amount of cash in the in the parking fund, and what was its performance last year? Parking. So, if we look at page thirty-eight of the of the printed book, page forty-four of the PDF, we can see here our parking fund has cash of one point one million one million three hundred and seven thousand cash. Um, the performance of that parking fund would be found on page 46 of the PDF, page 40 of the printed book. Um, parking fund brought in $2.6 million of revenue in, the, in fiscal year 23. They had expenses of $453,000. Now, I do want to note that that does not include salaries. In fiscal year 23, salaries for parking enforcement was in the general fund. That changes in 24. Um, we made a $2 million transfer from the parking fund into the general fund, and we still had an increase in net position of $237,000. So we had a, a very fruitful year in the parking fund. We increased our, our net position. We transferred $2 million over to the general fund, um, and we still have $1.3 million of cash available in that fund. Got it. And just to emphasize, the parking fund is separate from the general fund. It's reported that, that separately. That is correct. And then just a question. This is, uh, I have no idea what our auditor will say this, but I was just curious if uh, if he might opine, since he mentioned that he does this for many cities. Uh, are you comfortable qualitatively just summing it up for everyone? 
in your experience, is Sausalito's finances uh, average, above average? Uh, is it a, uh, are we in a good financial picture from your assessment of uh, liabilities and uh, revenues, cash on hand? Uh, what's your impression? Yeah, so obviously, uh, uh, our opinion is only our written opinion that uh, that is in the financial statements. But if you just ask me my just my uh, personal assessment based on the cities that I that I see, um, of course, I uh, as the auditor, I'm always cautious. I'm not going to say you you have no risk or that I see no issues. Uh, pension liability is always a concern. The numbers fluctuate significantly, and next year you may find yourself, you know, having even a bigger liability with higher contributions that needs to be made. So things can change very quickly. That's why I'm saying, you know, six months in the general fund is is good. It's definitely one year is definitely better, and uh, will will make the city more comfortable. Uh, but I would not say that this should be your goal, but, but obviously uh, I'm always cautious about saying everything is just great uh, because things can change. But I would say that, yeah, compared to, we work with uh, almost 40 plus cities. And um, uh, again, uh, the, the ones that we get concerned about are the ones that have low fund balance, that the, the revenues are not exceeding expenditures, that it's a consistent consistent trend and that also that they don't have um, uh, uh, industries they don't have you know potential for newer revenue sources and things like that i don't see any of those things in sausalito um, so i would so yeah uh, our opinion did not disclose that we have any concerns about the city's financial condition uh, but please keep in mind that we're we're not financial forecasters. Uh, our opinion uh, would only consider 12 months from the date of the opinion as to whether the city is financially viable or not. So that's a very short period of time. We just really look at can the city just continue to pay its its existing bills for for the next few months. Uh, but it's by no means a long term assessment of the city's financial position. Thank you. Are there any other? Comments? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I meant questions. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. So we're opening up for public comment on this item. City Clerk. Seeing none. Oh, that's right. You did. Uh, yeah. Right here. 5B. Yep. You're right. Yeah. Babette McDougal. Good evening. Thank you again for acknowledging me. So I, I just want to ask a general question because it reflects what seems to be a growing sentiment, not just in our own community, but within the region generally. And that has to do with being in this extraordinary time known as the housing element. So the question is, how would an auditor, when you mention that there's no evidence of fraud or illegal acts, I would assume that if someone were embezzling funds out of the city coffers, that a, the sharp eye of an auditor would capture that rather quickly and track it down and find evidence of fraud, for example. But when we have citizen participants in government, whether they are appointed or elected, 
and they seem to champion a certain cause um, because it appeals to them. And then it's somehow revealed that there was payoffs. Is that ever revealed by an auditor's study? And if so, how? Um, well, we're, we're, no, we're, we're not answering any questions. Thank you. Public comment. Oh, that's unfortunate because your own policy does not prohibit this. It only says fill out this, the, the piece of paper. So you, this fellow is not allowed to answer either. And so we're, we're marked at this time zone limit while you guys run out the clock ad nauseum at times because you're not adequately prepared or you just want to repeat one another or embellish each other instead of moving on or submitting your questions and comments ahead of time so that we can be more expedient. There needs to be an equitable sharing of how this time is used. Thank you. All right. uh, we have uh, online, we have Pat Zuck. Pat, if you can unmute yourself. Uh, she doesn't seem to be responsive. It's, you know, past tense, so maybe. Yeah, but she's getting a prompt that uh, to unmute herself and we're not getting any response. Yeah, okay, no, I don't see it. She should be able to. Yeah, we're clicking ask to unmute and she's not doing it on her end, so I'm not sure what might be going on. Walford, where, sorry. Where is the prompt? Where does it appear on her screen to unmute? Huh? Where? Okay, sorry. Okay. We might want to have a tutorial at some point <laughs> from our city clerk. Uh, well, look, if there's no objection, are there any other public comments? Say none. Uh, well, so we could begin our discussion if there is any, if you can keep working that. I would welcome her comment uh, as you work that item uh, technically. So in the interest of time, let's continue our discussion. But if Pat Zook and you can work that out, uh, then uh, we will hear her comment. So on the dais, are there dis is there discussion or comments on what we have heard today? You're not buying Ms. Zook any time. But. I, I mean, I, for myself, I would say thank you to the auditor and primarily thank you to Chad Hess for his really um, hard work and really competent work uh, in the last year to, you know, starting with revising our opening fund balances to accurate amounts um, to uh, enabling us to invest uh, over a million dollars into our pension trust fund. Um, to it to facilitate the policy we put in place in 2018 to kind of flatten the curve on our pension 
obligations um, and to uh, creating the monthly reports that you provide to us to with the vice mayor's recommendation to increasing the amount of um, interest we earn on monies that sit in our various accounts. Um, I, you know, I am contrary to public comment, I'm actually very, very proud of the work that the city staff um, and the policies that the city council has adopted to enhance our financial position over the last year. And I think the audit, the clean audit report, the first clean audit report we've had in several years actually bears out that effort. And I look forward to continuing that, um, that practice of excellence. And I would move to receive and file the fiscal year 2022-2023 basic financial statements and report on internal control over financial reporting. I'll second that motion. I, I don't have much to add except to say that I'm thrilled to see that we are in a stronger fiscal position than we were in prior years. That's very much in part to our city manager, Chris Zapata, as well as our director, Chad Hess, and the entire finance department team, and the result of hard work from our department heads in, push, in cutting back on some of our budgets and making some necessary changes. So I really appreciate everyone's efforts here. I'm thrilled to see a clean audit, and I'm happy to support the vice mayor's motion and move us forward. Before, uh, before we continue, I think Pat Zuck might be able to. All right. We oh, welcome Ms. Zuck's comment. Mayor, if I can. Pat, you're on yes. you can speak. Yes, City Manager Zapata. If, if Pat can't come on um, anytime soon, I will call her, get her questions, uh, bring it forward, uh, make it a matter of the public record, provide a response if we need to. And also want Chad to tell uh, the public how they can access the audit document itself. Certainly. The audit report will be posted to the city's website under the finance department's page. Uh, we'll get that up tomorrow. Um, we also have bound copies that will be coming, and we, as uh, past practice, we have put them in the library uh, so somebody can go down and check out the printed book. Um, I don't know when that will be available. Um, probably within the coming week, we'll have a, a bound copy there. Um, but you can always check it out tomorrow online. Uh, it's also attached to the, the agenda for this evening. But it'll be up tomorrow on the Finance Department's page. Other colleagues? No, I'll just echo the thanks to, to Chad. If anybody's not sure where we are fiscally, since Chad has been on board, things have gotten extremely clear and transparent. And if you have questions, I urge you to go and review those documents if, or review the meetings if you um, have further curiosities. But he has done an extremely diligent job in cleaning this up. So thank you, Chad. I will second that. Any comments, uh, Pat? Echo those positive comments about Chad's work. Thank you. All right. Well done. Uh, we will move on to our next agenda item, which... You have to vote on the motion. Oh, I'm sorry. Thanks for reminding me there's a motion that's made and seconded uh, to accept and receive uh, and file the, uh, the report. So uh, all in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? Uh, motion passes unanimously.
Item 5D is the introduction and waiver of the first reading of Ordinance 2024-01, an ordinance of the City of Sauc City Council and the City of Sausalito Municipal Code readopting Chapter 2.60 Military Equipment Use Policy. Vice Mayor, before we start that, it's after 10. Can we just look at our agenda and figure out what we're going to do? Yep, it's... Uh, look to the sense of the council about whether you wish to stop working at this moment or seeing uh you know estimates of the length of this item and uh, whether you'd like to hear this from sir rogers i note that we have members of the public here who are very interested in the item with regards to edwards who have been here since the beginning and probably want to comment yes. so if we were going to hear an additional item i would suggest that we hear that item although i would be very mindful of time I'm open I would love to hear 5D and 5E. In terms of the new 5G, I'd like to just agree on the next three meetings or so yeah. so that we can defer that discussion. So yeah, hearing the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just, I don't, it depends on how long the Edwards, I don't know. How, okay. I know this is very short. Mm -hmm. Get through this and, and see and confirm it's short. And then if we have to give it, we'll give it. All right. Uh, so uh, that sounds like the plan. We'll hear from uh, 5D and 5E, and that will probably be our meeting uh, this evening. So Officer Ed Rogers, please proceed. Yes, uh, good evening. I'm Brandon Rogers, Lieutenant for the Sausalito Police Department. And I wanna thank you for letting me speak tonight about the annual, excuse me, annual renewal City of Sausalito Municipal Code Chapter 2.60 Military Equipment Use Ordinance. Uh, at the December 5th, 2023 regular council meeting, a public hearing was held to present the 2022-2023 military equipment use report per government code section 7072 and Sausalito Municipal Code chapter 2.60. A staff report was presented and a public hearing was held. There were no questions asked or public comments made about the 2022 2023 Annual Military Equipment Use Report. So the fiscal impact uh, of the 2022-2023 report is that the police department is asking for $468 to replenish beanbag rounds that were used during training during that period. Um, and then the police department's also asking uh, the city council to renew Sausalito Municipal Code Chapter 2.60, the Military Equipment Use Ordinance. And I'm open for any questions you may have. Questions, please, for Officer Rogers. There are no questions. Is there, we will open the floor for public comment. Seeing none. Closing public comment. Uh, is there any discussion from the dais? Mayor, I move we receive and file the fiscal year 2022-2023 basic financial statements and report on, oh, sorry, I'm at the wrong item. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, hold on. I move we introduce by title only and waive first reading of ordinance number 2024-01, an ordinance of the city council of the city of Sausalito re-adopting Sausalito Municipal Code chapter 2.60, military equipment use policy. Is there a second? Second. Any discussion on this motion? Seeing none, we'll call the question. All in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? Measure passes unanimously. We'll now hear item 5E, 
adopt a resolution authorizing the city manager to award the construction contract composed of the base bid plus three bid alternatives for the 2023 pavement improvement project Edwards Avenue in an amount of $1,050,530 authorize a construction contingency for the project in the amount of $121,920 and authorize the city manager to award the professional services agreement with the CSW Stuber Stroh Engineering Group for a contract construction management amount not to exceed $107,550. Please proceed, sir. Thank you. Good evening, Mayor and Council Members. I'd like to thank you, the City Manager and Director of Public Works, for this opportunity to bring before you the award of the 2023 Payment Improvement Project, Edwards Avenue. I'm Andrew Davidson, Senior Engineer in your Department of Public Works. This evening, we will be asking you to award a construction contract for the resurfacing of Edwards between Marianav and Alexander, and to award a contract for construction management and inspection for this project. Next, please. A little history. As part of the 2022 streets resurfacing project, the city resurfaced portions of Gerard, Johnson, and Platt. Edwards was included in the initial list of roads to be resurfaced. However, because Edwards is very steep, includes concrete paving and sanitary sewer work, it was separated from the 2022 project. This was also done so that we could get the work on Gerard and Johnson started and completed. It started in October of 2022 and followed and completed the following month. Next slide, please. Location map, there's Edwards for the, the project. Um, High side is Marion Avenue to the west, low is Alexander to the east. Next slide, please. Whenever I mention Edwards, I'm talking about the project within the limits. Uh, the existing street is concrete with some locations that have had asphalt placed on top. The street is narrow and gets very steep as you go east down the hill. This portion of Edwards is also one way from uphill to downhill, west to east. Where there's asphalt on top of concrete, the asphalt is separating and crumbling away from the concrete. The concrete's highly cracked and parts are breaking away, spalling, and there are vertical displacements in the surface. Edwards is past its useful life, and unfortunately, we cannot maintain the existing roadway with a less cost costly treatment. It must be removed and fully replaced with a new structural section. Replacement will be both with asphalt and with concrete. The flatter uphill 600 feet of Edwards will be replaced with a new asphalt roadway, while the steeper and narrower downhill 300 feet will be replaced with a new concrete roadway. The intersection of Marion will be partially asphalt and partially concrete. In conjunction with the city sanitary sewer staff, it was determined that the existing sanitary sewer main within the project limits requires replacement and the existing sanitary sewer maintenance holes require either rehabilitation or complete replacement. The approximate length of sanitary sewer main that needs to be replaced is 1,100 feet. Additionally, the city will be installing new lower sanitary sewer laterals, cleanouts, backflow, and backflow preventers. This is going to be a complex project. Uh, the road needing to be partially or fully closed during demolition and placement of new asphalt and concrete. Next slide, please. The original budget for the project was identified with the 2022 street resurfacing project and was presented to the council in March of 2022 as $2.49 million. This, inclu sorry, this included Edwards as well as Gerard, Johnson, and Platt. Now we're gonna need an additional money though from the sewer enterprise fund uh, to take care of the sewer work in Edwards. And you can see that in the table of about 
$530,000 just for the sewer. Next slide, please. The city received three bids for the Edwards project, the lowest being Majoran Gelati's bid of $1,050,530. All bids were determined to be responsive and responsible, so we are asking you to award the constru construction contract to Majoran Gelati as the low bidder. The cost of the 2022 project was $715,000, as you can see on the table. The cost of the Edwards project with construction con contingency and construction management and inspection is estimated to cost $1,280,000. So it, looked like we'll it looks like we'll have about $1 million left in the allocated budget, which we may wish to use to construct the retaining wall at the intersection of Edwards and Marion. This wall is currently under design. Next slide, please. The photo on the left shows where Edwards narrows and where the proposed transition between asphalt and concrete roadway will occur. The photo on the right shows the location where the retaining wall that we've just spoken about uh, may be constructed. We had originally intended to include the wall in the Edwards project. However, we decided to remove it for several reasons. Specialty construction. It's likely that the wall will require it be constructed by a contractor that specializes in various types of retaining walls. Cost. During the earlier stages of design, retaining wall estimates were coming in between $1.5 and $2 million. And delay. In order not to delay this roadway project any further, the retaining wall was removed with the anticipation of going out to bid as a separate project later this year. Next slide, please. 2024 pavement improvement. So uh, the Director of Public Works made a presentation to you in October of 2023 about proposed 2024 pavement improvements where he mentioned that the city's current pavement condition index is 58. And that to maintain that current pavement condition index, it's estimated that an annual budget of $1.8 million is needed. And actually to increase the city's pavement condition by five points, it's estimated that an annual budget of $2.9 million is needed. Next slide, please. So the 23-24 CIP allocation for streets work is $1.95 million. Now, our 2023 pavement improvement project that's before you this evening is not part of that allocation. That money was already allocated except for the sewer piece. Next slide. Over the next month or so, we plan on visiting the field and verifying streets to develop a list for a 2024 pavement project. We hope to maximize the number of streets that will receive treatment by looking where lighter treatments may be employed to extend the life of pavements, such as microsurfacing, slurry sealing, crack sealing, uh, and digouts. We hope to include some streets that are in poor condition and require full pavement replacement, but as you can see, uh, those are quite expensive. We anticipate coming to the city council for approval of the list of streets before moving forward with a design. Next slide, please. So here's the recommended motion before you this evening. There are seven elements. And before we get to that, let's go to one more slide, please. Lastly, as mentioned earlier, this is going to be a complicated project. If the council approves this item tonight, staff, the contractor, and the construction manager will work closely with residents along Edwards and those who use it. The roadway will be closed 
to allow the concrete sections to cure. This is one of the more difficult roadways to repair, and we will need to work together with the council, emergency services, and the residents to mitigate as much as we possibly can the construction inconveniences associated with the project. So that concludes my presentation, um, and I'm available for questions, and thank you very much. Thank you, Councilmember Boston. Thank you very much. Nice to see you, Andy. Great, always great to hear from you. Uh, appreciate the time and effort. Um, I have driven uh, and walked on Edwards many times, and I appreciate the attention to it because it is long overdue. Um, I wanted to ask specifically about the retaining wall because I know that it is now storm season, look outside, uh, and typically, just remind us, isn't that one of the sites that you often check on when there's going to be a storm for potential erosion? Well, there's there's always erosion off of that slope. Uh, it continuously abrades. Um, what? So yes, we always walk past or drive past that slope along with many other places in the city of Sausalito. So that's not unique, though it's very visible. Um, and you will see uh, sediment running down the street on Edwards and wrapping around on the second and going into storm drains. So it is something we need to address. Uh, going a little bit further than that, the cost of the walls, it's really high. The lowest cost wall, all it would have done was, was to catch debris. It wouldn't have stabilized the wall. Um, and so at some point it was going to fail anyway. So that's one of the reasons we're going with these bigger, more expensive walls. So. And so you would say that that location is at risk of a potential mudslide? Any slide, any any exposed surface in Sausalito on a hillside is is, a, is at some risk. Okay, this is a question for Director Hess. Is he still on? Is he gone? Did we lose him? Is it... I'm here. Director Hess, could you remind me what the cost of the landslide that we experienced at Sausalito Boulevard was to our Ooh, Was that in 2019? Was that the 2019 one? Yes. Yeah, I think we I think we were out several million on that. I don't have the specific number in front of me, but it was expensive. But several million dollars. Yes. Okay. And then Andy, what's the estimated cost for the repair for the hillside at Edwards? Right now we're looking one and a half, two million. So. Okay. And just to clarify, so the allocated amount, we, we have enough to do the pavement repair and then what do we have left over potentially for the hillside? About a million right now. Okay. So this evening, potentially we could approve moving forward on that as well, because I didn't see it in the recommended it, no it's not part of this project okay that where our intent is to bring it to get it to bid documents to bid it and then bring it before you okay and what direction would you need from us to to move that forward just to ask you to bid it out immediately or our plan is to bid it as soon as we're able to we're not holding back on it for that purpose so we do plan on moving it forward okay thank you yeah so your presentation and your staff report both say that we have monies allocated for this project that will exceed the cost that you have obtained for the for this project by um, about a million dollars. And your staff report recommends utilizing any surplus funding from the original allocation and the award of the resurfacing to the installation of the uphill wall, which is expected to start in the summer of 2024. So that's your recommendation in your staff report. Mm -hmm. It's not part of your recommended motion. And so I think the question okay. from Council exactly right. Thank you. Blaustein was, can we at least give direction that you, rather than returning that surplus to the general fund or to the Measure L fund, that we actually allocate that towards the Marion Wall project, and then you come back to us and tell us how much more you need when and if you're able to design and bid it out? Certainly. 
please uh, thank you. Uh, so you say you had three bids. Uh, what were the other two bids? Uh, one was about $300,000 more than the Majoran Gelati bid. Mm -hmm. So 1.3, 1.4. And the other was a lot more. I just don't remember those numbers. Who else do we use for uh, roads in Sausalito besides Majoran Gelati? We don't pick folks, right? We go out to bid with large projects like this. So other firms that have done work in the city of Sausalito, uh, Gelati Construction or Gelati Brothers did the gate uh, the gate six project out of the intersection with 101. Uh, I think Gelati Construction did a 2017 project out on uh, third, main, and fourth. Who did Gerard? Who did Gerard? That was Major Orange Gelati last year. Mm -hmm. Who right. did Johnson? Major Orange Gelati. <laughs> so those three those three streets were done under one project. Uh -huh. Major Orange Gelati was the low bidder for that project. Okay, so let me ask you this. Um, but those are three separate companies that you're referencing. Understood. Yes, thank you. Um, so here's my question, though. Um, but the same folks who did Gerard are the ones that were selected for this project. Is what I'm hearing. They're the low bidder, correct? Okay, so m my question to you is um, sort of quality control, because uh, we had a lot of complaints on the Gerard project around uh, seams, around the uh, the storm drains, and around the sidewalks. Um, when Kevin, when Director McGowan came in to present the uh, project for our, our budget to consider, there was some dissatisfaction with the quality, and I'm so I'm just wondering, kind of how some of that selection process. Um, it seems like we have the same. Um, we have the same bidders come in winning the contracts, and I want to make sure that we're getting the highest quality work each and every time, not just the lowest bid. What is our process for ensuring that? Part of that will be having the construction manager inspector. We didn't have that with the last project, so we will have it for this project. So that's one way. Um, the George Gelati is a good contractor. They come in, they work hard, they, they bang it out. So I, I, I generally, and they're very prideful of their work. Um, I don't need to defend them. They, yeah, they could do it for themselves. Yeah, yeah, I just, I just want to have a sense of who's doing the work around town and how we're, how we're selecting um, when we kind of conceive past work, prior work, things like that. So I just want to have a sense of how we make decisions around what contractors we, we bring in. And again, when we go out with to bid, we are required as, as long as those are responsive and responsible bidder, they we go with the low bidder. And unless there's a real really big red flag and we, then we would have to do something but okay and then a question for director Hess. um i and i had sent these emails to um chad and to kevin but i uh, didn't hear back so uh, i was just wondering what's the total available for roadway repair in 2024 and what was the total cost estimate of our top five projects so i was trying to just give a, a perspective on you know this is an expensive project but it's a high risk area uh, where does it fall into our overall game plan for infrastructure so by, for interest of transparency? So I don't know, Andy, if you have that, you probably don't. No. But if Chad, if you do, that would be very interesting for us. Yeah, let me look it up real quick. Because your, your question is how much are we expecting to spend on infrastructure in 2024? Yeah. yeah. For the way yeah. we specifically. Yeah, for, let me check. While he's checking, can I address your question on how do we ensure quality yeah for sure so as a general law city we are required to take the low bid when we do a design bid build project like a roadway but we could implement a process to pre-qualify bidders so that if we had uh, you know a lot of complaints or if or various other criteria we could evaluate 
and thereby weed out the pool of potential bidders for projects that we're particularly worried about ensuring quality for. Yeah, and just to be clear, I was not, I'm not uh, attacking or addressing any particular contractor. You know, I only know the names I see on the, whatever things are in the, go in the middle of the road. Um, I just want to make sure that we don't have folks come in afterwards and say, hey, this thing, you know, with the seams there didn't work and the sidewalk is crumbling and the storm drain didn't line up and the pavement sort of stopped right there. Um, sorry you missed that meeting, but we had lots of those comp comments and I'm just trying to avoid future comments that are similar. Uh, so the, the overall budget for capital expenditure infrastructure improvement is just over 5 million. 5 million 36,000 was the budget request for fiscal year 24. Um, I don't have a handy breakout of what was roads versus what was other smaller improvements. The, the bulk of it is roads, though. I think 2.9 million of that was specifically just roads in the 24 budget. Councilmember Huffman, please. Um, so, um, Andy, I know that, and I'm I'm not going to use this acronym right, and I'm not going to probably, <laughs> so correct me, but. Edward, like every year as part of your as part of your ongoing process of updating our roads, um, you have a way that you index roads that are more at risk than others. And I seem to recall Edwards has been like at the top of the priority list, but the complication of the the different um, angles and the you know the elevation has made it difficult to actually you know get it to this point. Is, is that correct? So you're thinking about the pavement condition index? For, for all the streets here in Sausalito, and that's prepared every couple, couple every four years, something like that. Um, Edwards is about a 28. It's, as I said, it's gonna be a hard street to construct. Uh, it's gonna be inconvenient for folks. And that's probably maybe why it hasn't been done. You know, I don't know when it was originally built in the 20s maybe, um, but it's gonna be very impactful for the people who live and use Edwards. Uh, it's one way, it's narrow. Uh, so what's the, it's what's, steep. Okay, first of all, the 28, is that is that the index against the 70 or higher number is good roads? Correct. So, so it's from our, that we had in the payment index presentation that we had back in October. I think it was like. So it's 58. The city has a overall a, average PCI of 58. A 70 would be considered good. Right. Um, and so, yeah. And so then, so Edwards is a index of 28 um and then we were talking about what the number that chad just had but but we have specific projects for specific roads that we allocate money for but we're also talking about and also as part of that conversation back in october what we need to allocate annually to get our number up just five points which is what you just indicated which was instead of 1.6 million a year we really need to do two point Five, uh, 2.9, 1.8 2 .9. 2 and 2.9. 2.9. So, and that's just all of our roads. That's, that's to get our total index up to still a subpar 60 something. That would be the network. That's yeah, correct. That's, but that's better than 58. Yeah, it's better than 58. And Edwards would be at 90 something, you know, okay. so. Great. Well, oh, okay. My next question, do you have a timeline? Like how long is it? Not that I'm not going to hold it to you, I promise. But what's the timeline for people in the room and watching that are going to look at how long they're going to have to be hoofing it up that hill to get home. Well, so the construction project has an 84 day calendar okay. window. Uh, the amount of time that Edwards is closed is not going to be 84 days. We've got 
the, the preparation, the sanitary sewer work. Uh, I believe the first part of the roadway work, that's the reconstruction part, will probably be the lower concrete piece to get that in. Um, unfortunately, that's going to be the pain for people because that has to sit and cure for a number of days. They'll pour the concrete and it's got to be left alone. Um, the upper two-thirds, 600 linear feet, plus or minus, is going to be asphalt. So that's going to be inconvenient. But that's just a matter of hours once that's, that's played. Recording in progress. Recording stop. Recording in progress. World technical update. I'm unmuted. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think we're good. Am I good to keep going or do I need to pause for a second? Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so this is, I think, my last question. So the wall, the wall, the retaining wall that we're talking about. Uh, do those need to be done contemporaneously? The the work to the road and the wall. No, and that was a discussion we had, or I had with the designers. Hey, can we do these? Can we? Right. Thinking about breaking it up so we can do it. Are we going to be able to do it? The answer is yes. Okay. We won't. We won't be damaging the new road because okay. it's going to be, you know, a little inboard from the street. Okay, so they don't need to be done at the same time. No. And that's city property that we're talking about. That retaining wall. So we're going to need to get some uh, easements. Potentially because the property line is not all the way at the top of the slope and we need to protect to the top of the slope. Otherwise, you know, we're kind of in trouble. So we'll be working with the, I think it's one property owner and what I've heard so far from that individual, they've been receptive. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks Just for a your quick work on this. follow on question to council member Hoffman's question. If we're not doing them at the same time, is that going to result in additional closure time for Edwards for, for the road? I don't think so. That's the wider part of the street, right? Um, there may be times when it's closed, uh, but I don't think it's going to be as nearly as big as what we're going to have with the roadway. Okay, thanks. If there are no additional questions, then we'll open the floor of public comment. Good evening. Good evening. Um, my name is Rob Cox, and my wife Maggie and I are long-time long -time residents on High Vista Road, which is the road just above Edwards Avenue, which we use every day to access our house. And we commend the uh, council and the committee, um, as well as the uh, city staff, for working so hard on, on this project on Edwards Avenue now with its complexities and the road resurfacing and also the sewer issue. Uh, but we think uh, equally as important is this wall issue. Um, the city consultants over 28 years ago recommended a retaining wall in this area due to a landslide in that 
in that part of Sausalito. And uh, as a matter, it's really as a matter of public safety that we need a wall in that area. And then there is also the issue of the sloughing off of topsoil down that slope into the storm sewer system for the city of Sausalito, which has not been a good thing as well. And we note the discussion we've just had about what the uh, city staff has recommended with respect to the budget and with respect to the design of the wall. And we appreciate all that. We we're glad to hear that that is in process. And we urge the council members and city staff to expeditiously work to get this wall into place as soon as possible. Earlier today, I, I submitted an email to council members and city staff about a proposed amendment to try to add to the ones that you're considering and hopefully approve tonight with respect to Edwards Avenue on this question of building the wall, and we hope you do so. Um, High Vista Road is a private road on that same slope, and a few years ago, residents built a wall and we're happy to cooperate with the information we have from that experience. My name is Stephen Woodside. I also live in the same neighborhood and my uh, neighbor, Rob, does a great job uh, presenting our concerns, which I agree, I agree with. I just, I'm here though to say thank you. Thank all of you. Uh, uh, Mayor Sobieski, congratulations. And I see there, all the rest of you on the council are former mayors. Um, so I appreciate very much the hard work that you uh, perform every day, staying up late. It's now 20 to 11, past your normal time to try to finish a meeting. I very much appreciate it. I also uh, come from the perspective of being concerned about the landslides generally. And uh, um, Member Hoffman uh, led a effort also in 2019 to create a task force with serious recommendations, including areas like this, which were deemed hotspots that required attention. Doesn't mean that you need walls everywhere, but they do need to be looked at and assessed and mapped so that we can collectively throughout the city uh, make some progress and gain public safety. Thank you. We have uh, Jeffrey Stafford. You can unmute yourself, please. Hi, thank you. Um, yes, I just want to thank you uh, for prioritizing Edwards Avenue. Um, it is indeed in, in pretty rough shape. Uh, I have neighbors that are scared to drive down it, and uh, they go out of their way to take Marion instead, um, which shouldn't be. Uh, I do also want to bring attention to the fact that the retaining wall is actually much scarier than Edwards. Um, but I understand the idea of not wanting to, you know, put the two together and, and delay Edwards. But I do hope there is some priority towards the uh, retaining wall as well. My mailbox is right at the bottom of that retaining wall at that intersection there. And when I'm there getting mail and I hear cars going by on the private road above, you can hear rocks and dirt and everything crumbling down and, it, and it's pretty scary. So uh, it was always kind of, uh, I knew it was a private road and it was always kind of interesting to me to think about, well, is that a problem of the private road or is it a problem of the city road and retaining wall? But uh, it sounds like that's also being addressed. Um, but, uh, and then lastly, 
the the turn that's there is actually very sharp and uh, i was hoping that there might be an opportunity to through the design of the wall maybe improve on the severity of the sharp turn going up from marion um along that wall uh, where currently i imagine a fire truck and ambulance probably have to do like a five if not a nine point turn to get up there so um that's all i have thank you no further comments Seeing no further comments, we'll have a discussion from the diocese. Does anyone want to make a discussion or a motion? Can I just ask the city attorney, um, this um, recommendation of staff to utilize any surplus funding from the original allocation toward the installation of the uphill wall was a recommendation in the staff report, although it was not uh, part of the recommended motion. So can we add that to the recommended motion or can we give direction on that? if that's the consensus of the council? Yeah, I think you can give direction uh, to staff to follow that course of conduct. Um, I think ultimately, you know, there may be need to be some other future appropriation actions that need to happen and will need to come back to council in order to effectuate that direction. Agreed, I just wanna make sure that money is, is segregated if that's the will of the council. And then in terms of the recommended motion, this is a, a one-page motion. Can I just move to adopt a resolution, um, you know, essentially adopting the recommended motion in the staff report, or do I have to read the whole thing? Uh, you can you can say that you move the recommended motion as in the staff report. All right. So with that, I will move the recommended motion in the staff report, including uh, adopting the recommended resolution. Um, and I will also move that we direct staff uh, to utilize any surplus funding from the original allocation and the award of the resurfacing to the installation of the uphill wall um, and to return to us with any additional appropriation that may be needed to carry out that project. Second. So we have a motion on the floor. It's been seconded. Is there any discussion on the motion? Seeing no discussion, we'll simply call the question. All in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? Motion passes unanimously. Uh, so given the hour, uh, we could push item 5F, the budget calendar, to a future agenda item. Uh, the question then is simply 5G pulled off of consent, which is an internal matter. It's our uh, city council schedule. Uh, do we wish to discuss that? item in full or in part? Uh, may I recommend that we put item 5F on consent for our next regular meeting on February 6th, unless there's any objection to that, given that everybody's already read the staff report for this evening, and that for the budget, sorry, for the um, meeting calendar that we um, agree that we adopt the schedule through February 6 and place um, the balance of the uh, calendar um, for consideration at our February 6 meeting. Uh, Vice Mayor, can you just clarify them? We wouldn't really be doing anything then other than to approve the special meeting on the 22nd and the 10th? Uh, I would like to approve the special meeting on January 22, the meeting on February 6, and the workshop on February 10 and then leave it until February 6th to adopt the balance of the calendar or discuss alternatives. 
Yeah, that's okay. If I might suggest then, given that the press of business on the 6th and if there is some discussion, it might be more appropriate to talk about our calendar at our uh, priority planning session on the 10th. It would, sure. it would dovetail with an assessment of our work and our priorities and how we want to operate the rest of the year. Sure. So, okay. With that in mind, then I would think we don't need a motion. We have direction on the next three meetings and we will move this item to our public uh, comment. Public. Sorry. Public, public comment. comment. Thank you very much for the reminder. Any public comment on this item of our Five um, F and five G. A Um, I apologize. I meant to have public comment during the free speech section at the end. I can say what I want to say now, or go away and come back later. But if you tell me to go away, you do so at my risk. <laughs> I'm, wor I'm worried about losing her. If we... <laughs> so. Is it okay? <laughs> That's up to the mayor. Uh, feel free to pop it with your mute button now, Lisa. My uh, mute button is on a different machine. How about this solution? I can go away if you'd how like. About how about this solution? Leave your microphone on. Just don't say anything. Fine. Leave on this. And then the next thing is going to be public comment, I think. Right. Let's do that. Perfectly. Great. That's a great solution. So we have uh, any other public comments that matter in the calendar that I've seen? Seeing none. That's the direction. I don't think we need a motion on that. We now move to the portion of the agenda for uh, comments on the calendar agenda. Uh, and I'll move it up. The first public comment from Ms. Pat Thank you. Uh, first of all, thank, congratulations, um, Mayor Sobieski, and I hope you have a good year. Um, part of the technical difficulty was the lateness of the hour. And this is to urge you to revert to a prior, the prior protocol of taking public comment first. I, I know several people tonight who would have had something to say, but couldn't handle um, staying coherent until 11 o'clock. I know why the public comment was moved, and I urge you to certainly test it out by moving it back to the start of the meeting. Thank you very much. Um, uh, City Clerk, would you like to manage public comment? Sorry, uh, Jeffrey Chase. Yes. Uh, hello, Mayor and City Council. So I, I want to second that, that this uh, was a very uh, technical meeting. I think I understood maybe half of it, which is pretty good for me, but that the public comment is at the beginning and it sets the tone from, from we the people, uh, especially as the year goes on and who knows what kind of controversies come in to keep us awake. All right. So thank you and good night. And we have Senator Bushmaker. Hi. Uh, 26 years ago, we moved the public comment to the beginning of the agenda. And uh, it worked very, very well for many, many years. And I would like to encourage you to do the same now. Thank you. Uh, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. It's been a long day for everybody. Thank you. Thank you for acknowledging me. Well, it turns out, I, I just want you to know that when I speak to you from this lectern, I am usually representing the body politic to the extent that people have checked in with me and made known their wishes, but prefer to stay watching on the closed circuit television. So public input in general has got to be reinstated by the city council. COVID is over and the people want to come back. They just don't like the way the council has gotten in the habit of comporting itself. And it started before the five of you. So it's not like I'm trying to point a finger here, but we need to reinstate the public engagement process. It's vital, it's vital. It's vital to the survival of our community's small d democracy. And that really is important. So I'm asking you to consider it strongly. Move this public comment thing back to the beginning like it used to be. You want to implement the two-minute thing because you think we're responsible for you guys running long in your meetings? Fine. But the point is, let public comment come back and re-engage the citizens when they say something that requests a response. Kindly respond. It's kind of an unfortunate thing to learn that we don't get to hear about the a housing element, EIR, until we read the final draft. We finally see our comments then. This is really not the way it was meant to be. So that's it. And then on a personal note, I want to say thank you to each of you. Some of you have really excelled over the last year. And I just want to say thank you for being here for the citizens of Sausalito. This is the start of a new calendar year. We are halfway through the current budget cycle. I say, let's just go forward and make Sausalito better than it's ever been. And we can do that working together with our elected leaders and the citizens that put you here to do that work. Thank you. All right, seeing none, all the speakers. Seeing no other public uh, comment, we'll move on to council committee re reports. Any reports from anyone? Um. Yes, I'm opening my, uh, okay. On Thursday, I attended the San Francisco Bay Conservation and Development Commission meeting as the city council liaison to that committee. Um, and we presented our quarterly report regarding our waterfront management plan and our eelgrass restoration plan. Um, together with uh, the regional Bay, Richardson Bay Regional Agency. And um, we raised an issue with BCDC, which is the acronym for that agency, which is that um, in our settlement agreement that we negotiated in 2020, it requires us to mitigate uh, eelgrass loss at a ratio of 1.2 to 1. Um, since undertaking, and interestingly, BCDC required that of us in our settlement agreement, but did not require it of the RBRA in their settlement agreement. And um, now that we've actually hired some biological experts to assist in this effort, and um, we have prepared an initial uh, restoration plan, which has been um, vetted by three regional experts, all three opined that this 1.2 to 1 goal which is enunciated as a goal in our settlement agreement um, is likely infeasible. 
immediately after receiving that information in July from these agencies, BCDC staff in December inexplicably announced that they would no longer treat this as a goal as enunciated in our settlement agreement, but would treat it as a requirement, <laughs> knowing that it's likely infeasible. And so I raised this issue during my uh, public comments and three BCDC commissioners um, asked staff for further information about why is it that Sausalito is being treated differently from RBRA? Why is it that this goal is now a requirement? And why is it that this was agreed to in the first place? Did we have, um, and why has it changed? And the answer is we didn't have any biological consultants advising us, and very little known is known about eelgrass. We are learning as we go. So I have drafted a letter with the help of Katie Throw Garcia, our um, sustainability manager, to answer those questions from the city of Sausalito's perspective. I've asked um, Councilmember Hoffman to weigh in on the content of that letter, and I would like consensus from the council that I can send that letter on behalf of the council as the liaison to BCDC. That's the gist of the letter and the communication I'd like to advance. Um, thank you very much for handling that and, and representing us well. Um, so you're aware that SFEI, the San Francisco Estuary Institute, applied to the San Francisco Bay Restoration Authority uh, for a proposal to advance a living shoreline project that included restoration of eelgrass. And I just wanna make you aware of that as a possible additional benefit to the conversation that we have one of, I think seven living shoreline projects that were picked out of this restoration authority. So I'm wondering if it might be appropriate to just put this on our calendar as a business item at some point in the future so that we can all better understand. Stop talking. Stop talking about it. Water it's not agenda. Also, I thought we had a consultant. That's my second question. We do have a consultant, Robert Mooney. No, there's a woman, Kathy's consultant. Okay. I think we should uh, yes. comport with uh, our recommendation from our city attorney. I think, I think, uh, I think it's a, under future agenda items, perhaps. Yep. Yes, I, I would recommend you put this on the agenda for a future agenda item. Any other committee member reports? I have a quick, just a reminder to members of the council that we will be having our first Marin County Council Members and Mayor's Committee meeting on January 24th, which is next Wednesday. It's also open to members of the public, by the way. Uh, and this time it will be on Zoom and we will be hearing from our Transportation Authority of Marin Executive Director, Ann Richmond, as well as our Bridge District Executive Director, Dennis Mulligan. So if you are able to join on Zoom, council members, it will be at six as usual. And I hope to see you there. Mayor, I thank you for that. Uh, one thing to add. Um, so I am a member of the BCDC um, Regional Elected Officials Task Force for Sea Level Rise and um, was made aware that there's money, uh, SB2 monies, for projects and planning and conveyed that to Katie Tao Garcia, our uh, sustainability resilience manager, and hopefully we'll be able to pursue some of those funds um, because apparently the Ocean Protection Council wants to literally give them out. So um, we should prioritize that. Thank you. Is that it? Any other committee reports? Uh, is there a public comment on any of the committee reports? City clerk, nothing. All right, item eight. I don't think we do public comment on committee reports. Uh, do we, Sergio? I'm not sure. Well, uh, 
in any event, there are no there is no public comment. Uh, item eight is the combined city manager reports, uh, city manager information for the council, uh, and future agenda items. Is there public? We take public comment on this first. Is there any public comment on these items? Seeing none. Seeing no public comment, we'll move on to the city manager information for council. Thank you, Mayor, members of the council. Thank you, public, for being here tonight. Thank you for all your work. Um, I want to say to you that uh, there's more work to be done. Uh, there are three appeals pending to the city council. Um, so at our last agenda setting committee meeting, a pretty vigorous discussion was held about the upcoming Monday, January 22nd meeting, which is a special meeting to consider the Pine Street appeal, which will start at 7 and has been posted that way. Uh, Given that we didn't have one meeting in January, uh, the recommendation was made that we have two additional items at six o'clock, no closed session, but two additional items for the council's information and consideration that are a part of the pending council agenda list. And starting at six, uh, the items being discussed would be catastrophic-based insurance, which I think is extremely timely given the weather and Sausalito's history, and then the pending uh, request for proposals for facilities that we need clear direction on. So uh, those are two items scheduled for six, but if they don't get resolved before seven, the hard stop is the advertisement has been made for the Pine Street Appeal to be heard at 7 p.m. So uh, that's a Monday meeting that is really important uh, that everyone be aware of. Uh, the start time in particular, which is six o'clock. The second thing is the city council has agreed on a February 10th strategy session, which is a Saturday. Uh, so I want to make sure that the public is aware of that as well. Uh, that's always uh, an open to the public uh, affair where the council does a lot of its work to build uh, consensus and help us build a work plan and therefore identify budget priorities and work for the coming year. So that's on February the 10th and it will start at eight o'clock. That concludes my report, Mayor. I have, I have a follow up on that. When we were polled as city council members for our time, we were weren't we polled for start time of seven for that special meeting because i don't i don't remember being re-polled for a start time of six i recall that we were polled and that we were that there were specific times that we were talking about so i could be wrong but the other thing is special meetings as my understanding special meetings are for special work not regular work of the city council meeting. So, and this is a different night. This is not our regularly by resolution scheduled night for a city council meeting. So I, I'm just wondering about, one, we're changing the start time from what we were polled, and number two, we're putting regular city council work on a special meeting um, instead of having it at a regular meeting. So I don't, I don't know if the city the attorney wants to weigh in on that or parameters on that. I will say I, we scheduled the special meeting because of the unavailability of all council members for a two, another Tuesday night meeting in January. So we scheduled it on a Monday to accommodate council members' pre-existing commitments. Because it wasn't a regularly scheduled time. Because our regularly scheduled meeting, by yeah, by resolution, our meetings are first and third and so that's we canceled the first meeting and now this is the third we this this is not tonight's the third 
and we wanted to have a special meeting to get anyway to address i thought the appeal which is not regular city council business it's something you know different on the consent so thank you councilmember hopping on the consent agenda for the december 19th meeting we passed a uh Direction from the uh, entire city council to cancel the January 2nd meeting and find another date in uh, for a special meeting. So it was this special meeting is a substitute for the January 2nd business meeting. And so we comprehend doing business at that special meeting. Yeah, I, I don't know if you still need an answer. Uh, generally, you're allowed to do any business at a special meeting with some limited exceptions. Those include passing ordinances and uh, passing contracts for executive compensation, uh, calling special meetings on salaries of uh, local agency executives. And I think there may be one other one that I am blanking on. But in general, you can conduct most regular agency business at a special meeting. Thanks, City Attorney. So, you know, I apologize. I thought it was the direction of the council to find a substitute for the January 2nd meeting, which was the first day everyone was back. So uh, I think staff operated in good faith uh, as did we all to try to find a business meeting to do our work and everyone's schedules are very busy and it was a gargantuan effort to find any time and so i'm glad we did find a time that we could do this thank you very much thank you city manager uh that is conducts that completes our business here tonight and we're going to adjourn oh, thank you very much thanks for catching it the future just saying if you're paying attention this late hour. Item 8C, future agenda items. Does anyone want to formally add anything to our list of future agenda items? I, I was approached by um, some members of the board at the Sausalito Center for the Arts as a request to have a conversation about their lease potentially at some point in the new year. So I just want to flag that and make sure it's on the list of future agenda items. Okay, that'll be added. Anything else, Councilmember Hoffman? Um, what specifically about their lease? I think they just wanted to have a discussion about where they stand on their lease and the changes in the terms, or sorry, the upcoming. Um, upcoming escalation of their lease, their, the rent. So they want to come and talk to us about not escalating the rent? I, they just want to come that. and talk to us about the lease. I don't have specifics. Okay, because so. the lease is for another five years, I think, right? Is it? It's five years. It was five years when we started, so they've got another three years on the current lease. So, okay, got it. Any other future agenda items from anyone? All right, so now we get to uh, complete this meeting. Uh, five minutes past 11, we will adjourn and uh, see you again on January the 22nd at 6 p.m. Uh, for a special city council meeting. Thank you, and I will bang the gavel. Recording stopped. <laughs> That's right. What'd you say?